there's sort of an excitement, like not finding out what my kids were going to be when they were born. I knew they're going to be humans, of course, but, uh, you know, not a, a boy or a girl. And so this is kind of the same feeling of excitement for me. I know on their flyers that they've been posting, they're showing Castlevania, which would be incredible. But, uh, you know, I'd be down for anything. <laughs> really uh, excited about the show. That's awesome that you compared what <laughs> music a band is going to play at their show to the genders of your children. Right. <laughs> You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Ghost 81 discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on rfgeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter. This time around, it's just Rich and me as we kick off the new year with a trio of classic Nintendo titles. Star Fox 1 and 2 are viewed as primordial 3D games for the Super Nintendo, while Star Fox 64 for the N64 is often regarded as one of the all-time greats. In this episode, we'll discuss all three on their merits in 2020, and of course, we'll talk nostalgia as well. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at rfgplaycast, and Rich is at the single banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to rfgeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. Jack, it's a rap that's to the beat. 
chillen Joe und dessen Bruder hip und auf den Rest der coolen Gang. Sie rappen hin, sie rappen her, dazwischen. Oh mein Gott. All right. Are we all right here, Rich? What's, I don't know, man. What's going on? <laughs> I had to apologize. Uh, <laughs> been a little late on this call. It's a too bad, you know, like five minutes or so. But oh, it's rough when the uh, wife goes out of town. I got the two boys, including the toddler, and uh, he just wasn't having going down tonight. So hopefully I've got him locked in. I've got my eight-year-old here to uh, supervise. And I was like, if he wakes up, just let him get in the bed with you. So uh, I think we're all good, man. <laughs> All right. I was uh, trying to find my phone. I called my phone through the Alexa. It started ringing. And of course, I had left it in my three-year-old's room where I had just put him down. And he came out screaming. And I was holding a cup of coffee. And I just spilled it all over my hands because I made some hot coffee for tonight's recording. Yeah, man. Chaotic in the old uh, banana household tonight. Interesting. Well... <laughs> I actually wanted to kick off the conversation with something that's kind of related to that. Uh, we talk about health in general and mental health topics sometimes around here. And I, I noticed that you and I have uh, some work-life balance issues going on <laughs> around the same time. And yeah, uh, we've been talking about it behind the scenes. And it's something that has affected my games played. You'll you'll find out about that later. And I'm just curious to hear about your situation and I'll tell you a little bit about mine and then maybe we could hash out some wisdom, some tips to get past it or to improve that work-life balance. To get maybe that. we should ask for some wisdom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I have some ideas and my situation has kind of improved I'll just say what's been going on with me is that I have my full-time position at my company. You know, my official job title is warehouse manager. And where I work, there's been a lot of operational changes over the past year or so. And the business has just slowed down to the point where I have very little to do at a certain point. And mm -hmm. I just have a lot of bandwidth and... It got really bad. It was very depressing. It was boring. And it's a challenge to go to your superiors in the right way to say, hey, I need more to do, you know? Oh, absolutely. But luckily, I was able to do that. And I was given an opportunity to help on some projects that are, I don't want to say they're above my head, but they're just in a completely new realm of the business that I have no experience in. So I went from my workload being so slow that it was depressing and boring and sad to what my boss referred to as drinking from a fire hose with uh, just training <laughs> and new information and new all tons of new responsibilities. And it's been really exciting lately. But for a while, when I first started it, it was just like, oh, man, I made such a mistake. I'm yeah. way in over my head. And I'm usually very good at not taking my work home with me, meaning taking the stuff off of my mind when I walk out the door. But yep. I was having a real problem with that, with all this new stuff and just worries and questions swirling in my head. And it was really hard to focus on anything. And it was hard to get to sleep. And for a while there, 
I was in this stage of like, wow, this is too much, but starting to get used to the new responsibilities and just trying to be grateful for the opportunity and just learning new things. So, Yeah, I was in a similar situation about four years ago in my old job. I just had a lot of downtime and felt like I had nothing to do and significantly bored. And people might be like, what are you complaining about? You're getting paid to do nothing. But I think you and I are similar in that we like to stay busy to make the day go by. We like to work. You know, we like to feel like we're a valued member of wherever we're working. So I feel like you did the right thing for sure in going and asking. Now, if someone else is in this situation, the best way to do it is not to go and say, hey, I'm bored. Do you have anything I can do? It's to go and say, hey, you know, I feel like I could help out in different areas. You have some other stuff that I can do. I feel like I have a lot of free time on my hands where I could be helping a little more. And I think that's the way to approach it, you know? Yeah. But like you said, you can get into the case where you might be overloaded with work. And uh, it sounds like that was what happened to you and you were just a little overwhelmed for a while. But it sounds like it's maybe finally settling down, right? Yeah, things are starting to kind of even out as I get a grip of the things that are going on and the things that I'm responsible. And now it's the emotion is kind of changing from panic and confusion (laughs) into more like excitement and a little bit more of I am in control of things. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, my job is similar in a way. My job is very structured. You get a plate full of work and when you're done with your work, That's pretty much the end of your day. I try to keep myself busy with other things, you know, like doing things for this podcast or maybe paying bills, just anything that I can do in my downtime. But it's nowhere like what it was in my other job where I would just basically go in during the day and I would sit there for maybe seven and a half hours and have nothing to do but surf the Internet. That was awful. Like mentally, it just puts you in a really bad place. And physically, I feel like as well. You know, it just it makes your body feel awful just sitting there for that long. I'm glad to hear things are working out for you. I think my biggest problem with like work life right now is, of course, you know, having a big family. Um, soccer season just started. My daughter is six hours away right now playing in a tournament, which luckily my wife took her to. So I have all this going on, practice three times a week, running up and down the road. My son's doing things. I've got a toddler. And, you know, I have a lot of responsibilities as far as the website, as far as this is going on. And I also do other things, too, you know, like work on pinball machines and arcade machines and stuff like that. For me, I think it's just at a point where I feel so stretched out. I like to do a lot of stuff. I like to stay busy. I like to put my hand in things. But at some point, I feel like I'm going to have to start cutting back. But I don't know how to do that and don't want to do that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's hard for me to be in your shoes with the whole family situation, but I guess it's just a classic case of making choices as far as prioritization. Absolutely. And even if you have to do it on a daily, you know, a day-to-day basis, today I'm going to tinker with pinball machines, today I'm going to focus on the podcast. I think that if I was in your place, that's how I would try to approach it. Yeah, and that's kind of an explanation of why some of these podcasts have taken a little bit longer to come out, so... To our listeners, um, I want to apologize, but, uh, you know, know that uh, when I have time to work on it, I'm definitely, uh, you know, putting everything into it. So uh, that's where I'm at. And also, I do want to say, just to kind of round out this conversation, I'm not cutting this podcast. <laughs> that's one of the things that I refuse to cut. After my family, that's uh, high on the list, probably next. Yeah. Well, I think I speak for our listeners 
and definitely myself, of course, when I say there's no apologies necessary. I, above all people, appreciate the work you put into this show. And I know the listeners do as well. And the product is always worth it. It's like this saying about a delayed game, right? A bad game is a bad game forever, but a delayed game is just a delayed game. So podcast comes out a little bit later. We know it's going to be awesome. And uh, I don't think anybody's too worried about that. So your efforts are very appreciated. I am the last guardian of podcast editors. (laughs) (laughs) Or are you the Star Fox 2 of... (laughs) I'm not going to answer that right now. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, I wanted to real quick just follow up on a movie recommendation that you had given me, Rich. And you you had mentioned the film Better Watch Out around Christmas Halloween time. And I just wanted to let you know that I watched that movie and... It's hard to talk about because it's one of those films where yeah. you don't don't even watch the trailer, don't no. learn anything about it because it's just going to take you on a journey. And I just want to say that I really liked it. It made me squirm in my seat. It made me <laughs> uncomfortable. It was disturbing and bordered on mean-spirited, but in a mm-hmm. way that wasn't gratuitous like in a you know, a tortury kind of way. So right. it just really like tinkered with my emotions and what like <laughs> I'm willing to tolerate in a in a horror movie. So really good recommendation. And cool. I just wanted to kind of echo that. And uh, my wife really liked that as well. So awesome, man. I'm, I'm glad yeah. to hear that. It's it's a very modern take on horror. I think it's neat. It has a neat little twist in it, which I did see coming partially. And again, I don't want to spoil that. Um, The ending, the very end of it is such a great payoff. That is one of the best shots ever. I love it. (laughs) And I will say this, they pay homage to Home Alone in this film. So good. That might have been one of the things that made you squirm. But uh, yeah, yeah, so good. So good. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, everybody check out Better Watch Out. I know it's a holiday film, but I feel like it's one you could also watch any time of the year. I don't think there's anything specific to Christmas about it other than it's set at that time of year, right? Yeah, I don't know how to respond to that. It's, I guess, <laughs> like in the same way you can watch Silent Night, Deadly Night, or you know, Black Christmas any time of the year, you can watch sure. this as well. <laughs> um, so going from that, I guess we can roll into... I don't know if you wanted to talk about New Year's resolutions. We kind of do this every year. And, you know, I just want to continue on trying to be healthy and and get a little more physically fit. But I don't really want to talk about that too much. What I really thought of as a New Year's resolution was that I need to watch more anime. If you can believe it or not, I didn't really watch that much anime in 2019. And I really fell off. My wife and I I think we only watched like two shows together and I really like watching them with her. So I talked to her and told her I wanted to watch more and she's cool with it. So I'm watching a bunch of stuff. We're watching some stuff together. I finally watched Attack on Titan season three, which is kind of weird because I'm like an Attack on Titan fanatic. But what happened was I was watching season three as it was airing and just not being able to like binge watch the episodes made me 
kind of fall off of it. And I never finished that season, which is as of this recording, the most current season. Season four is coming later this year. And um, I watched an anime called Serial Experiments Lane with my wife, which is a really cool anime from the 90s, almost in like the era of when the internet was so young and people didn't really know what to make of it. Like think of movies like The Matrix. It's just a really cool sci-fi series from the early internet era. And then most recently I watched Gunbuster 2, which is a Studio Gainax who became Studio Trigger. It's kind of a mecha anime. It's only six episodes, which is why I wanted to watch it. Gunbuster 1 was really cool. Gunbuster 2 didn't have any involvement from Hideaki Anno, as far as I can tell, but it was still pretty decent. And now, currently, I'm re-watching Kill La Kill, and there's a couple reasons for that, but I actually <laughs> I think tweeted... I know one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I actually tweeted this morning, I wore my Ryuko Matoi cosplay to Whole Foods to go grocery shopping today because <laughs> I'm just so high on Kill la Kill. I love that show, man. It's like such eye candy. It's such crack for my brain. I can't believe how good it is and how like tailored it is to my tastes like in every way it's funny it's colorful it's bombastic it's actiony it's fan servicey but not in a raunchy way at least for my tastes i just love that show so much so i'm just watching a lot of anime then right now that's just kind of what's going on and i want to keep it up and just share my thoughts and feelings about that so I'm just curious, did you pull any New Year's resolutions, anything out of the ordinary besides the normal like health goals and maybe improving your work-life balance, <laughs> your family balance, your tasks and that kind of stuff? I uh, probably should have made a resolution to uh, help with the work-life balance, but I didn't. Um, really, I I'm staying on the weight loss journey. Cool. Over the holidays, I slipped quite a bit, gained 10 pounds back, so uh hmm. It came on fast, you know, because of Thanksgiving, Christmas, and then I just had a birthday uh, recently. Three cakes, man. What kind of person gets three cakes? <laughs> that's, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is nice. I, you know, it's nice to know that I have friends and family that love me and everything, but man, we're going to have to do something about the cakes. We're going to have to change that uh, with meat or something. But anyway... As far as resolutions are concerned, I like what you're doing with your anime resolution. And since my wife and I love watching horror films, maybe I can try to at least get in one a month. And uh, it could be maybe something we talk about on the show as well. Maybe yeah. I could recommend or tell you to stay away because I was just looking at my shelf and I've got hundreds of horror films from the 80s, you know, to present. And just looking at them isn't enough. Like my video games, I need to be playing them, you know. And so... uh think I would really like to just kind of go through them, not necessarily alphabetically, but just watch a few at a time and uh, just try to knock some off my list because a lot of them I haven't even seen. It's just one of those things when I find them in a good price, I pick them up. And I listen to a lot of podcasts and, um, you know, watch a lot of YouTube videos on horror films and recommendations in my downtime at work sometimes, <laughs> like we were talking awesome. about. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's just how it goes. And uh I'm not saying we're going to make it a segment of the show. I think we have enough of those. But, uh, you know, if we happen to uh, watch something, we can talk about it. 
Cool. I'm totally down for that. Awesome. So before we roll into the concert cast, did we get any mistakes that our a-hole friends pointed out on the previous episodes? I'm happy to say this is the third time in a row that we had nothing that our a-hole friends pointed out. Our asshole is getting very close to bleached at this point. Wow, that that is serious. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. but uh, if we do make any mistakes, please uh, shout it out. Let us know. Corrections are always a good thing and can only help us and our audience learn. Right? Absolutely. And for anybody who missed it, our last episode was our year-end extravaganza, and we had guests Crabmaster2000 and Dougley007 to talk about our favorite playthroughs of 2019, as well as many other topics. It's not like our normal show where we pick a game of the month and talk about that game. It's a, just a cornucopia of topics, and a, it's like a big variety show, and it was a lot of fun, as usual. So if you missed that one, go back and check it out because it's definitely worth a listen. Yeah, and I want to say that we do talk about games on that show because we do have a competition every December, and this past December we played We Like Gun Games. So we do spend a little bit of time on those, but we don't True. go in-depth like we do on these normal shows, the, the other 11 that we do throughout the year. So yeah, it's definitely worth a listen and uh, had two great guests on there. Doug and uh, Kelsey are awesome and uh, really enjoyed adding Kelsey this year since he played so many games. A lot of fun. Yeah, very cool. All right, well, let's get into the concert cast. Now, I do have a kind of a topic for the concert cast that I want to go over. But first, I know you saw at least one show that I'm aware of. And I, I, I grabbed some tickets, but I didn't see anything. So I think I should just go first and say just a couple ticket pickups that I got. So wait, wait a minute. Am I dominating the concert cast this time? You are. Whoa. whoa. Yeah, so mark it down. <laughs> once again, this is two podcast episodes in a row that I haven't seen any shows to report back on. Yeah. So I only have a couple ticket pickups. I got tickets for Beach Fossils and Wild Nothing. Mm hmm. And they are touring on Beach Fossils playing their self-titled album. And Wild Nothing is playing an album called Gemini. I'll let you know a little bit more about how I feel about this ticket purchase in a second. The other one that I got was Waves, which is a band that we've talked about in the past. Yes. And a band that was featured in our Albums of the Decade episode, which we are also about to discuss. They are touring on the anniversary of their album King of the Beach, which is, I think, one of yours and definitely one of my favorite albums of all time. So that was a instant no-brainer day one ticket purchase to go see that show. I just got that on vinyl, actually. So I was really nice. stoked about that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so that's it for me. Uh, what about yourself? I know you saw something very similar to what I just talked about. Absolutely, I sure did. I want to say first, though, that I saw something the other day that was on some packaging. As you know, Sean and I do keto, and uh, one of the things we eat a lot of are pork rinds. That may sound <laughs> disgusting to some, but they are incredibly delicious, especially the good ones. So I thought that if you and I ever started a band, I came up with the perfect band name for us. 
and I was looking on a pack of pork rinds, and there's this like big yellow sticker, and it says on it, ring on meat. Now, do you know what that means? Ring on meat. No, I don't know what that means. Basically, it's to the grocery store clerk to put it in as a meat product. Ring oh, okay. on meat. Okay. Love it. Right. I think it's a great <laughs> band name. Pretty sure it hasn't been used. It's ours. Putting the stamp right. on it right there. I'm down. Let's get the t-shirts printed. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We won't even have a band. We'll just have a fake band and put tour dates on there and stuff. That'd be great. That would be right. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, as you mentioned previously, you had tickets to a show, Beach Fossils. Now, this was a band that said their opening album uh, and in 2011 was my album of the year. It was on our music show. And you told me about the show, and I actually got tickets to the show as well. And in between our last recording, I've already seen them. I saw them yeah. on the Friday after my birthday. Uh, my wife and I left the kids with the grandparents, and just she and I went out to a really nice dinner and uh, went to the Cat's Cradle, which is a killer place to see a show, and uh, actually got to see Beach Fossils. This is strange. I haven't done any research on this, but you said that Wild Nothing was opening up for them. The band that was opening up for them when I saw them was called Gemini Nothing. And I think that maybe is Wild Nothing, just doing the Gemini album. I don't know. But I saw them open up, and they were really okay. good. We didn't catch the whole thing because we went to dinner, and the show was kind of late. So I was kind of like, eh, you know, we can kind of miss the opener. You know, just take our time and relax and go see Beach Fossils. But uh, caught a few songs there at the end, and I think it's something that you might enjoy, man. So I know you're a little hesitant about the uh, Wild Nothing after listening to some of their stuff. Yeah, so I just got to ask. So these two albums come from an era in the like late 2000s, early 2010s, where there were a bunch of bands like this. And I don't know if you've ever yeah. heard of bands like Surfer's Blood. Yes, or love Surfer's Blood. And also Best Coast, who I'm going to see next month as well. Mm -hmm. There are these bands that have this like there's no limit to the amount of reverb on every track. And it's such a washed out sound that it, it almost gets washed out to the point of monotony. Mm -hmm. And it's so mellow. I actually tried to listen to this album Gemini at work and it was just lowering my energy level because it was so unmelodic and washed out. And I really had like a bad assessment of it. And then I tried to listen to the Beach Fossils and was starting to get the same vibes from it. And I just kind of had to back off and say, like, I'm not maybe I'm not in the mood for this. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping and you can go ahead, please spoil this for me <laughs> and tell me they play in a more hi-fi way with like a little bit more energy and that it's like seeing a band play rather than just this washed out, swirly, super, super reverby sound. That's like a, you know, a sleepy dream. You know what I mean? Yeah. Two things. There was another band from that time actually called Washed Out. That's actually that's really right. good. Um, <laughs> that's right. And two, you're going to love the show because it is very high energy, fun. Beach Fossils almost has a kind of pop punk sound now. And especially cool. when they're playing. A lot of their early stuff is very kind of shoegazing, like you said, washed out. And just music to kind of chill to. And so... That 
sometimes doesn't translate well to a show. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's great to listen to an album like that. I really love that kind of stuff. It's just easy to listen to while I'm working a lot of times. And so I can really appreciate those types of sounds. But yeah, like I said, uh, the show was very, very high energy. There's a mosh pit at one time. So, um, (laughs) and I have a funny story about that mosh pit. So the lead singer goes up to the microphone and he said, I'm so excited about playing here at the cat's cradle tonight. He said, I don't know if you guys know this, but I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. I had no Hmm. idea. He said, we used to get in our cars and drive up to Chapel Hill to come to this actual venue and watch bands play. And it was my all-time dream to play the Cat's Cradle. That's cool. It was awesome. What was even more awesome, he brought like 30 family members. His mom and dad were in the crowd. His (laughs) damn grandfather was on stage. He was like at the back of the stage and he brought him out and had everybody cheer for his grandfather. It was really, really awesome. But the thing about the mosh pit, he's like, let's see some energy. You guys can have some fun. You can mosh if you want to. He's like, just don't mosh into my mom. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think those words have probably ever been said on stage. Don't mosh into my mom. But uh, it it was fantastic. I think you're going to have a really good time at the show, man. So um, I can't wait to hear back from you and uh, see what you thought about that. But anyway, um, moving on. I actually picked up some tickets as well. April Fool's Day, a band that I know you're familiar with and all of our listeners is going to be familiar with, Bit Brigade, is playing here in town. So I picked up two tickets to go see them. I don't know who's going with me. Probably one of my friends. My wife said she would go, but she's not really into video games, so I don't know that she's going to like that very much. So it's kind of touch and go. We'll see. I'll probably just end up taking a friend with me to that. Now, are you familiar with Bit Brigade, Sean? Actually, I wasn't until, is this the one you told me about where they play over somebody playing a game? Yes. Okay. Yeah. This sounded really cool. I haven't had a chance to like check anything out. I'm sure they're on YouTube if I look for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, They play a lot of shows. They play a lot of conventions. I'm not sure if they played Retro World Expo before, but I know they've played like MAGFest and other places like that. I think they've even played the one up in Portland before. Really awesome, man. You should definitely check them out. So it's like a full band, you know, drums, guitar and everything. And basically somebody plays a game like, say, Metroid, Castlevania. I know they've done Ninja Gaiden and they play the background music. And if they die, they play the death music as well. And it, it just <laughs> it matches up. Everything does. And it's just like really rock and and really cool. I have no idea what they're going to be running when I go see them, which is kind of exciting to me. You know, there's sort of an excitement, like not finding out what my kids were going to be when they were born. I knew they're going to be humans, of course, but, you know, not a boy or a girl. And so this is kind of the same feeling of excitement for me. I know on their flyers that they've been posting, they're showing Castlevania, which would be incredible. But, uh, you know, I'd be down for anything. (laughs) Really uh, excited about the show. That's awesome that you compared what... (laughs) music a band is going to play at their show to the genders of your children. Right. (laughs) Also, probably one of the first times something like that's been said, much like, don't mosh into my mom. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Bringing it all back together. (laughs) And then another show that's on my radar, and I know it's on yours too because you told me about it, is... Tycho's actually coming nearby. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's playing three shows in North Carolina. We're central to the state. So each show, I wouldn't say is equal distant, but there's two shows that are during the week. 
And there's one show that's actually on a Friday. So we're going to opt to go to the Friday show in Raleigh. One of my coworkers, she's going to go with my wife and I because I actually got her into it. She was having a bad day at work. And I was like, hey, why don't you listen to this? And she listened to it. And she's like, oh, my God, just made my day so much better. <laughs> you know. And uh, so she's going and I'm actually going to call the place to see if my daughter can get in. My 11 year old daughter loves Tycho. Hopefully it might be like an all ages show so that she can get in. But, you know, if not. We're just going to go and leave her ass at home anyway. <laughs> just get her a fake ID. Yeah, yeah just, you can pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's it, man. That's all that's on the horizon for me, except for hopefully going to see Ozzy Osbourne, if you haven't heard. Uh, there's been some really bad news about Ozzy. He's been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and so I don't really know what that's going to do to his tour. I saw him on the Grammys the other night with Sharon, and she walked him up on stage. He seemed a little shaky, had a cane with him, but seemed to be in good spirits and, you know, talking. So that's a good thing. I can actually understand what he was saying when he was talking. So hopefully, you know, that tour is not going to get canceled, and uh, we'll definitely go to that. And uh, I guess kind of a final thing that I just wanted to touch on was um, the death of Neil Peart. I don't know. Are you a big Rush fan? I'm not, but I definitely respect... Uh, rush for what they did and you know they are kind of libertarians and their first album was about Ayn Rand so mm -hmm. I kind of have heard more about them from that perspective and I know that they're just virtuoso musicians especially Neil Peart has been you know referred to many times as one of the best rock and roll drummers of all time mm -hmm. so he uh, lost his um, wife and daughter in a car wreck like what was it like 15 years ago right like very sad and now he himself has passed away so yeah i don't know it's uh it's sad and it's sad that rush like they i feel like rush would have kept making albums and touring forever yeah. and uh now they they can't obviously yeah uh, i saw them eight years ago and the way i remember is because my wife was pregnant and um we saw prince and rush in the same week it was cool to actually see them. It's the only time I've ever seen them. And uh, I'm glad, you know, we made the decision to do that because, like you said, I think this is a band much like the Beastie Boys. They're not going to tour anymore. I, I just don't think that they'll fill in for him. It just wouldn't be Rush anymore without him. So uh, it's a really sad loss. Um, my understanding is that it was cancer and he and the entire band kept it really quiet. But they hadn't been touring for a little while, and I think that was a big part of it. So, uh, yeah, RIP to um, my favorite Canadian, and second only to him would be uh, Kevin. Okay. <laughs> All right. Just, uh, we'll leave that right there. <laughs>
So I wanted to do a follow-up to our Albums of the Decade sidecast that we did, Rich. Yeah, right And reasons for this are I want more people to hear it because it's very, very good. <laughs> and I can say that confidently because I've listened to it like 20 times all the way through. It came out exactly as I wanted it to come out. Good. I wanted it to be like a cool mixtape that you could listen to that just has like narration from some of your cool friends. First of all, I want to illuminate for our listeners how this went down because I think it's funny and it just goes to your work ethic with the podcast that we talked about a little bit so far. You approached me and said, hey, do you want to do like an Albums of the Decade sidecast with, you know, we'll make it like a radio show, we'll have full songs in it and we'll put the actual music in and, and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, it sounds like a cool idea. Next day, you're like, I wrote out a script. I got all my song choices. <laughs> day after that, I recorded my tracks. Are you ready to go? <laughs> and I was like, dude, I like I got to do some research and like listen to some music here. So then I'm like filling in like my playlist and I'm like, so what do you got? Like a top 10? And you're like, no, I have 23 tracks. <laughs> like, oh God. Yeah. Uh, I get excited about stuff like that. And although I like top 10 lists, I, I think top 10 lists are kind of like subjective. Like why stop at 10? Like why not put the things you really like on there? I mean, don't go overboard. But when it comes to sharing music and talking about music, it's really one of my favorite things to do. Obviously, if you've listened to this podcast that we're talking about, you know that Sean and I, both of us love many, many genres of music. Um, and so no matter what you listen to, I think you're going to find something in there you really dig. And I will say between us, four different languages were spoken on this episode. <laughs> we had English, Spanish, Japanese, and French. So just for that alone, you got to check that out for the novelty factor. In the language of love. Yeah. <laughs> so I just had a, I had a couple questions for you, Rich, and I thought maybe we could just hash out and tease out some behind the scenes details because it really was like a cool process to kind of come up with this show and, uh, you know, this particular episode that I'm talking about, the decades list. So what is an album that almost made your list but didn't and why? Do I get to talk about a few or just one? Yeah, I have a few. <laughs> okay, For each okay. of these questions, I have I a few I thought you examples. probably did, knowing you. So. Yeah. Um, I will give a few, and then I'll tell you which ones were definitely like right at the cusp. One album that I kind of wanted to put on there was Beck's Morning Phase. I'm a huge Beck fan, and oh, this yeah. is the one that Beck won the Grammy for. But I'll be honest, I really like the album, but part of me feels like it's just a kind of a redone album of Sea Change, which was one of the albums that he did in the previous decade and is really, really dear to my heart. And I love it. And I don't think Morning Phase comes close to touching it, but it has a very similar sound, you know, very personal, very mellow, and it's still a good album. And so I just wanted to point that out that people should definitely check that out. One of the bands that I wanted to put on there was a band called Y Oak. That's W-Y-E. They're on the Merge label. It's two people. It's a female that plays guitar and sings, and then a guy on the drums. One of their albums in the previous decade, The Knot, is one of my favorite albums. It's just kind of this low-toned album with this girl that has this immaculate voice, and 
it goes from uh, very light to very heavy and up and down. It's really good. But they had an album in 2014 called Shriek. And again, while I do like this album, I wasn't quite as in love with it as I was with The Knot. And so I feel like with Oak and with Beck, I wanted to have them on the list and not specifically that album. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I really wanted to put them on there. But in, in the end, it was sort of like, well, there's other things that they did that I liked a lot better. And I think there's other bands that are a lot more deserving. And then another album that was on there and I marked it out was uh, Surfer Blood's Astro Coast, which you mentioned earlier, <laughs> which is funny that you mentioned that. I think that was their debut album. And uh, I really, really dig that album. It's a really cool one. And uh, I feel like that sort of, uh, again, lo-fi beach stuff. Um, I think that's a good one to check out. Very similar to uh, bands like Best Coast and uh really cool album and then the final one was another electronic album it was just that thing where i was like i'm putting way too much electronic on here and i need to cut something but um it pains me that i cut this uh 2010's drink the sea by the glitch mob i don't know if you've ever heard this band before i think i have this album on my ipod yeah i think i know this one it's this really, really just uh, electronic, just super nasty uh, sound yeah. and just glitches like computer glitches and stuff. They're true to their name. It's just really fun to listen to. Very energetic, uh, just pumping. But just like I said, just has a really nasty sound to it. And uh, yeah, that's that's the one that was right there on the cusp, but didn't quite make it. Very interesting. I want to check out that Y Oak band. Dude, start with the knot. That is an incredible album through and through from start to end. It's one of my favorites. Cool. Uh, So for me, for albums that almost made my list but didn't, there's an artist named Cher Lloyd who has an album called I'm Sorry I'm Late, which is it's a really good pop album, but I did a lot of pop. I had to make some tough choices because I didn't want the whole thing to be just dominated by pop as much as I like it. I wanted a good mixture of genres, so... I just want to shout out that album. It's really good, uh, but it didn't make the cut. Another one is Taylor Swift's Red, which is still one of my favorite albums of all time. I was listening to it the other day, and I think it really holds up. I just think that the whole world already knows about Taylor Swift, and I don't think... You know, in the spirit of this podcast, which is to kind of shed light on lesser known things, we do it with the games we play and the things we recommend. I didn't think Taylor Swift's Red needed to be on my list for that reason. There was one more, and this is very interesting and kind of sad. There's a band, and I'm hesitant to even mention the name of the band because of what happened here. It's a band that I really like. However, I found out in my research for the episode and for making the list that one of the members of the band was accused on multiple instances of sexual misconduct and a few instances involving minors. So as if a light switch turned off, thank God I learned about this. And this is all alleged and whatever, but I just am no longer interested in this band. I'll probably never listen to them again. You know, the whole concept of separating the art from the artist. I I will just stop listening to someone. I don't care what it is or who they are if something like that happens. So there was a band there that didn't make the cut for that reason. So that was 
very strange and kind of sad to find out. And, uh, you know, it just sucked. So I don't know if there's uh, anything else to say about that. So I have another question, and this question might be hard to come up with an answer, but it's because I have a specific example in my mind. But what's an album that would have made your list if you made the list in 2015? I was struggling with this question because I didn't really understand. Like, say I went from 2010 to 2015. Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is, if you had to make the same decade, yeah, from 2010 to 2015, were there any albums you were like super high on around 2015 that you look back and say, wow, that's in no way an album of the decade? I'll give you an example of one of mine, the fun album, the one that has Some Nights and um, We Are Young. That album was huge, and I, I really liked it when it came out. And then as time went on, it just faded away. The band broke up. You know, they had the world in their grasp, but then the lead singer wanted to go solo, and it was this whole thing where they just dissolved and... You know, the individual members have had success, but fun as a band just evaporated. And as such, that album is not something that I really care about anymore. And I almost never listen to it. Yeah. Uh, I would probably say The Suburbs by Arcade Fire. Okay. I was really high on Arcade Fire with their first album, Funeral. And it's still my favorite, even though Suburbs is the one that obviously won the Grammy that year. And according to Kanye, who the fuck is Arcade Fire? So, <laughs> but uh, I mean, the Suburbs is one I still like. I don't listen to it as much as I listen to Funeral, and it's not something that's in my rotation. But I still like the album, and and I definitely think that if we would have cut this off from 2010 to 2015, that's one I would have put in there. That is one that would have been on my radar as well. I really liked that album at the time yeah. it came out, and I was really into them for a long time. Another one for me is Kesha, her album Warrior. I remember when this came out, man, it has We Are Young on it, it has a bunch of other good songs. I even at the time thought all the deep cuts were good, the strokes are on it, Iggy Pop is yeah. on it. At the time, I thought it was like one of the greatest pop albums ever. But again, over time, it's kind of faded from the like pizzazz or whatever it had going on. It's just kind of dated now. And then on top of that, you have to factor in the allegations against the producer, Dr. Luke, or whatever his name is, that he was physically and or mentally abusing Kesha and like mm. just all the drama and stuff that went on with that. It kind of puts a taint on the album. It just casts this like dark pallor over it that it, it makes it again hard to enjoy just because of the history behind it yeah so that was another one that if i made this list a long time ago i would have thought oh this is going right on it but that one didn't make the cut either what's well, funny i really learned something about myself and i guess this question is sort of poignant in this regard i felt like a lot of my albums were from like 2010 to 2014 and 15 and it really shows that I was listening to a lot more music back at that time than I have been recently. And oh, I think, again, okay. that's, that's another thing to do with my, you know, sort of work-life balance. And my video game collecting has gotten larger, um, you know, my collection of horror films and things like that. So I feel like music is one of those things I've had to put on the back burner in that regard. And so if you do look at my picks and you hear when they're from, most of them are 
2015 and lower. There are a few more modern picks, but really only a handful. Gotcha. All right. So what were some of the highlights and lowlights of the other person, meaning me? <laughs> now you had to listen <laughs> to all my songs and you know edit my parts together. So what were some of the things that you liked in my segment and some of the things you didn't like? Maybe some surprises, uh, any comments like that? You know, I, I know that you're really big into pop, and that's really not my thing. I, I'm just not a pop person. But I will say that I really loved the first two tracks that you picked. Oh, XXO okay. by Mia and then the Uffy ADD SUV. I really like those two songs. A lot of fun and just really enjoyed the beats on those songs and became two of my favorites that you had. The other thing that you put on your side that I didn't have, just because I don't listen to a lot of rap, and like you said, you and I are kind of old heads when it comes to that. I think that's the term you used, and it's very truthful. I do like a lot of the older rap, like Run DMC and uh, LL Cool J and a lot of that stuff. But um, I really like Banana Clipper by Run the Jewels. I was shocked at how much I liked that Danny Brown song. It was a little off-putting the first time I heard it. I was like, what is this, man? This really is choppy and odd and... And then, like, as I was editing and stuff, I kept listening to it. And then, you know, my wife and I went on a trip and we were listening to the podcast. I'm like, man, I really, really dig this song. It was awesome. Uh, and that was Ain't It Funny. And then I, I liked the Droob song, too. I liked all three of your picks. The Bangladesh. I, I really liked the uh, sampling in that song at the beginning and stuff. It was really, really cool. And so I just really love that segment of your podcast a lot. As far as the Screamo stuff, as you mentioned, this might be the most off-putting, but it would be the one you might appreciate the most. I did come away with a better appreciation of the music and also like what it actually was, like the genre. I think my favorite song out of the three was probably La Dispute's Most Bitter Fruit. Mm -hmm. I I really liked that one a lot, and um, I really actually liked Gouge Away's um, Hey Mercy. It was really good. I wasn't so keen on the Touche Amore stuff. It wasn't really the sound, but maybe just the song so it's something that you know i would probably like to hear a little more of it might just be the track that i wasn't crazy about but uh really enjoyed that segment a lot more than i thought i was going to you know and then the other song i wanted to point out and i'm not even going to try to pronounce the name of this and i know you're not going to remember but whatever the uh, japanese group was on there that song kicks ass that was really really cool i I really enjoyed that yeah i love that song the group is called geso kawami no otome i can pronounce the band's name i had nobody's gonna even be able to (laughs) spell that so they're never gonna be able to find it (laughs) it's funny it took me like nine or ten takes to say the song title and i i know a tiny tiny bit of japanese and pronunciation is not very hard to me but what kept happening was i kept like singing the song because the title of the song is the chorus. So uh, it was really point. hard for me to like get the pronunciation right because I would break into like singing the song and then I would trip over myself. So it took <laughs> me so many takes to get it right. I just remember when my wife and I were listening to it on our trip, we were just driving just the two of us. And uh, she just looked at me after you said that. Some she's like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and then 
she started listening to it, she's like, this is good. I like this. I was like, yeah, yeah, me too. I was like, I don't understand a word of it. You know, it's all in Japanese, but there's something about it. It's just really catchy and fun, you know? That's a list of the highlights from me from your side. Do you want me to do the lowlights now, or do you want to do your highlights first? Well, I can tell you, I mean, I really liked the Mountain Goat song that you chose. Yeah. Again, I have a bunch of their albums on my iPod, but I'm just not like super familiar with their music. But that song, I just like that bouncy acoustic guitar indie rock sound that they had going on. And the song tells a story and I just really like the lyrics to it. I did like all the electronic stuff. I also really like electronic music, but my most relevant and recent electronic albums that i thought came out in the 2010s actually came out in the 2000s so (laughs) a lot of them didn't make the cut like crystal castles and justice Uh, and stuff i would have picked that crystal castle they came out before the 2010 decade so i didn't have any just straight up electronics so i really liked the the bonobo song the taiko song and some of the other stuff you had neon indian of course Mm -hmm. now one of the things that I really liked about your segment was that there's a handful of songs. I'll name five songs here. So Sleigh Bells, Lord, Kishibashi, Waves, and we could stop there. So at first I was like, oh man, he stole those from me. Because like (laughs) Lord Pure Heroin would be like, it was an instant no-brainer pick for my list. It was the first thing I thought of when you proposed this whole episode to me. And I was just like, ah, man, he took Lord. But then I was like, well, now Lord is in his segment. That gives me another opening to pick something else and bring in, you know, bring in Uffy or bring in MIA. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I thought it was awesome that you put those in. I love Sleigh Bells. I love Lord Kishibashi. What's also kind of cool is that of those four artists, I would have picked different songs. So I found your song selection to be very interesting and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Cool. So what are some of the low lights? <laughs> I could probably guess what the low lights are for you as far as <laughs> mine's concerned. Um, the low lights for me, and this is an age thing, I feel like, and a geographical thing. I'm not a pop punk guy. I've just never really been into pop punk. And oh, so that okay. segment to me was probably the one that... I least enjoyed. Now, some of it was pretty good. I, I did like um, Modern Baseball a bit. I thought that was a pretty good song. But there's a bit of an age difference between us and our buddy Bill, who's been on the show before. He's a big pop punk fan as well. When I go up to Connecticut and I'm riding around with him, he's always listening to pop punk. Our buddy Russ, who's from the north as well, up in Connecticut, he loves pop punk music, was in a pop punk band. So I think it's like a regional thing. I think like up north, that was like really huge. Green Day kind of started all that stuff, and I was really into them at one time, but then it just kind of fell away, and I started listening to more heavier type punk music, bands like um, Rancid and Fugazi, and even The Descendants to a, you know, a certain extent, and so I just really never got into that pop punk thing. Still to this day, I just don't have the appreciation for it that a lot of people do. Okay, that's fair. And that, yeah, that doesn't hurt my feelings. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm not I'm not trying to dog it. It's just, you know, like I said, I think it's a, a regional thing and an age thing. I think 
people that were younger to me, like started listening to like Good Charlotte and uh, Blink-182 and bands like that, whereas I was just kind of past that and was just kind of listening to my own thing at that point, you know, and, right. and finding a lot of indie music at that time and not really listening to what was on the radio. Gotcha. Well, for, you know, my lowlights of your segment, you know, I enjoyed most of what you put here. And I should mention also, I really like the Jason Isbell song that you picked. I, cool. I really want to take the time and just listen to his music because every time I hear one of his songs, whether it's on YouTube or through this, like I just really like him. But I was kind of surprised to hear Greta Van Fleet. And it's kind of hard for me because I don't like Led Zeppelin in the first place. So when there's a band that comes out and just sounds like this, I, you know, I don't want to be too derisive, but they are just really a carbon copy of Led Zeppelin. And they're Absolutely. not the first. Many bands have tried this. Wolf Mother, if you remember them, they yes. were this other band that did the whole wannabe Led Zeppelin sound. Black Mountain was another one that yep. did that whole sound. Yep. I was surprised. I was like, oh, Rich likes Greta Van Fleet. So, yeah, that one was just kind of like a low point for me because I just, yeah. I'm just not into it. So, and then the other one was Ghost, which was. <laughs> <laughs> so, listen, our listeners know I'm not into heavy metal for the most part. I like some of it when I hear it. But Ghost is a band that I've heard so much about. And maybe I just need to try some of their other songs. But. This one I just didn't like. I like that it had kind of like a hook to it. Like it had yeah. like a kind of a good poppy hook to it. But then like the lyrics were just like this kind of goofy, like satanic, you know, LARPing. I, like, I don't know. Is all their stuff kind of like that? Yes. Or? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you don't know the band, basically what they do is for each album, they choose a new pope. Their lead singer okay. comes out dressed as like the Pope, but like with skeletal face, but you know, the miter, everything. And so each album is just a succession. All the guitar players and the drummer, they all wear masks. No one's ever seen any of their faces. And so that's just kind of the whole shtick behind it. Their music is kind of like Hell Satan kind of stuff and mm -hmm. you know, a little bit evil, but you know, it's sort of the reflexive of what you typically get, which is kind of nice. I don't necessarily want to say it's satanic, but it's like anti-Christian. Yeah. I don't think that that's really their belief. It's just sort of anti-Christian, which I'm okay with. I, I like to hear other people's philosophies and ideas about things. You know, a lot of it's just the music and, you know, a lot of the guitar riffs and stuff like that. My wife and kids love it as well. And <laughs> cool. we're just really into it, you know. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I might not have picked one of their best songs, but uh, it's one of my favorites. Okay. Well, speaking of that, my next, and I have one more question after this to wrap it up. But sure. Did you make any last minute song changes? Because I actually made a couple. <laughs> um. The only changes I made were taking out that Y Oak album. So within artists, you didn't have one Kishibashi song and then changed to a different one at the last minute, nothing like that? <sighs> you know, I really don't remember it that well as far as which song I wanted to use. I kind of feel like with Kishibashi, I had to listen to the entire first side of that record because there's a lot of songs right there in a row that I really, really love. Hmm. But, you know, just pick the one at the time that was just really kind of vibe for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I get that. So 
for me, I had similar choices, like with my song selections, like with Uffy, ADD SUV is like the top single on that album. I do like the whole album, but that song Mm -hmm. just stands out above everything else on it. A lot of them just fell right into place. With La Dispute, it was actually really hard to pick a song because a lot of their songs, they're like really, really intense lyrically and obviously musically because it's hardcore screamo music, but like they have songs that will just wreck you emotionally. And I didn't want to put the the listeners of our podcast through that in a thing that's just kind of trying to showcase the music of the decade, like... La Dispute has a song called King Park, which is probably their best known song, which is about a kid who gets shot by accident in a drive-by shooting. And the the lyrics of the song kind of follow the shooter as he realizes what he's done. And I don't want to spoil the song. It's one of those songs you can only hear it for the first time one time. So... If you want to go cry, go listen to King Park by La Dispute. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of their songs are like that, that have this huge emotional impact. So I tried to pick one that was more just like general. And then mm. I'm, I, I was really glad to hear that you liked the song Bangladesh by Your Old Drew, because I actually had another song first called Blood. But I found that after the intensity of Danny Brown's Ain't It Funny, Blood is just this like really it's pretty mellow and a lot slower. So I actually went back and listened to more Droog and tried to pick something that was more appropriate for the mix. Yeah. And I came up with Bangladesh. So it was cool to hear that you enjoyed that one. And then lastly with Marina and the Diamonds, it was a challenge to pick a song and even an album because you had four albums come out this decade and they're all freaking fantastic from top to bottom i went with oh no and i don't have like second thoughts or whatever i'm happy with my choice but i would have went with hollywood but hollywood is one of her best known songs but then it's like how many people really know about marina that i couldn't have just put hollywood because it's just such a banger like why not just throw that in there but yeah i had um some second and third thoughts about uh, some of my track selections. But in the end, I think it came out really well and all the picks were really good. Yeah, I know a few minutes ago, I couldn't really think of any tracks that I stumbled with. But now, like hearing you talk about it, Jason Isbell, I was at quite of a challenge with that. I, I really wanted to put on If We Were Vampires, which is a song you and I have talked about yeah. quite a lot. But I was like, Sean's already heard that. So let me pick something a little bit different, see if he likes it. Man, I mean, he had so many albums come out in this past decade, and it's so hard to pick because all of his albums are so good. But I chose Cumberland Gap because, it, to me, it's a very personal song. He tried to write it probably about 10 years ago. He went to a town, and he saw a, a coal miner outside of a bar drinking a beer outside. And the reason he was doing it was because the town was dry, which means they couldn't sell alcohol in the town, and they had just changed the law. And he said that he saw that and he thought that was one of the coolest things, but he could never put down in words a song for that. And so he writes this song like 10 years later about that moment. And the song's very special to me because I came from a very small town and it's about not being able to get out. Yeah. And I was able to do that for better or worse, as people might think. But it's something in my life that I'm really 
happy that I did. And uh, it's really paid off for myself and my family. So uh, that song just rings so true for me. And so I had to put it on there. It's a really awesome song. And no matter what you think about country music, it's pretty damn rocking too. Oh, yeah. It's it's a really cool song. It goes back and forth. So something I really appreciate about him as a musician. Awesome. Cool. Thank you for elaborating on that. So my last question, Rich, is would you be interested in doing another one of these for a different decade? I might let you edit it, but... (laughs) 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 Now, do you mean like past decades? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, I mean... Are we going to have to keep the show going for another 10 years? (laughs) No, if we do, uh, like, let's say six months or next year, we do another one, Best Albums 2000 to 2009 or best albums of the 90s or the 80s like oh, would God. you i know the 80s or the 90s would be really intense <laughs> but actually doing like a 2000 to 2009 maybe our working our way backwards would be pretty cool i think yeah that could be up for that yeah the 80s you would get nothing but new wave music from me i'm just yeah. kidding no, <laughs> that would be, would be that would be a big pop. part of it yeah. <laughs> but you get some pretty cool rap too but uh yeah man let's uh Let's put it on the old agenda and uh, try to maybe work that out in a little sidecast later on. Awesome. So let's roll into news. Now, Rich, did you have a chance to check out this video that I threw in the notes? Yeah, I did, actually. Awesome. So we had an artist that I've talked about many times, Charlie XCX. She teamed up with an electronic group known as Galantis, who I also really like. And they did a promotional video for Nintendo for a song that's called We Are Born to Play. 
And I got to tell you, Rich, I saw this pop up in my suggested YouTube feed and I was like giddy with excitement to see what it was <laughs> because like here are two of my favorite things coming together, which is Charlie XCX and Nintendo and video games. And uh, it's just a cool little like joyous promo video with like graphics and people playing the games and jumping through pipes and Charlie XCX is on top of Princess Toadstool's castle with Toad and just looking out over the world smiling and singing and the song is a real banger like I really like the song it's very catchy and uh, it incorporates actually the Super Mario Brothers main theme towards the end of the song in a really cool way so I just wanted to shout that out, and I think that's maybe an obvious music choice to stick into this uh, episode, but you had a chance to listen to it and watch the video. What did you think of it? No, it's pretty cool. It's very Mario-heavy, I thought. Yeah. I, I would like to seen a few more of those uh, special Nintendo characters on there, but uh, yeah, it was a fun video to watch. I did have one question for you. What the hell is going on with that watch? that everyone's wearing. Is that something that uh, is coming out soon, or is that something that's from Japan? Do you have any idea? You know what? I did notice that I actually have no idea. We should pro <laughs> probably should have looked that up, but who knows? There, there you go. We're, we're throwing out a correction that people can make. So tweet at us what that watch was. It's and not we'll a it correction. <laughs> we didn't screw up. You know, we saw it and we didn't research it. How about we just put it in the next one? Yeah, that's fine. I think they might be going back to the like biometric stuff, you know, yeah. like they, they were going to do that finger clamp sensor thing for the <laughs> Wii and, uh, you know, Fitbits are very popular. My wife has one and she loves it. So, yeah, you know, like Ring Fit Adventure, which I've been playing a lot, something like a watch would just fit right into all that. Yeah. So the next news item is something that you put in. So why don't you take it? Uh, yeah, I actually got an email on my phone the other day, and it was about the Video Game Hall of Fame, and it was wanting to me to go on and actually send in a recommendation for a game that would be considered to be in the Video Game Hall of Fame. The Video Game Hall of Fame started back in 2015. Is this something you followed, Sean? It actually wasn't, and I hope I'm looking at the right thing, because this was kind of difficult well, I don't know if the difficult is the word, but it's kind of hard to research if I was looking at the right thing. Mm -hmm. Are, is this regarding the National Museum of Play? Because that's the the website I'm on. I think so. And it does start inductees in 2015, so I believe that's what you're what you're discussing. Yeah. So I'll just go ahead and read off the series and the games that are actually in there. 2015 was Doom, Pac-Man, Pong, Super Mario Bros., Tetris, World of Warcraft. 2016, Grand Theft Auto 3. I don't know why 3. Sonic the Hedgehog, Space Invaders, uh, Legend of Zelda, Oregon Trail, and The Sims, which I'm sure your wife will love. Yeah. Uh, 2017, Donkey Kong, Halo, Pokemon Red and Green. Again, don't know why those two specifically. Street Fighter 2, 2018, Final Fantasy 7, Final Fantasy 4, Space War, Madden, and Tomb Raider, and 2019 was Solitaire on Windows, <laughs> Mortal Kombat, Colossal Cave Adventure, and Super Mario Kart. I think that was Final Fantasy VII, Rich. You started saying okay. seven, and then you said four. I think I just maybe typed it in wrong, and I was thinking, oh, well, okay. yeah, I'm sure it was seven, because that's the one I think in the U.S. most people are in love with, so yeah. 
Yeah, and I would just throw out there, are you saying like Grand Theft Auto 3, like why not just say Grand Theft Auto the series? Yeah, I was kind of wondering why the third. Yeah, I think that's just because that's the one that's kind of the landmark, like broken to the 3D realm. Yeah. You know, kind of revolutionized the open world sandbox genre. And kind of the same thing with Pokemon Red and Green. They were the... The first ones, the biggest ones, and yeah, I guess that's what they were going for. I don't know, but that's that would just be my guess. Well, it's Pokemon Blue and Red that came out, and then Yellow came out later. So I was wondering, like, why green? Okay. Which good. was well, kind of weird. For, I mean, I don't know if that me. has something to do with, you know, maybe that was what it was called in Japan or whatever, but, you know, maybe our listeners can tell us and correct us. But the question I wanted to know is, what would you pick? as a series or a game that should be nominated for the Hall of Fame. Are there nominees like the Baseball Hall of Fame where you have a choice or you just can name any game you want? No, this was just for nominations. There wasn't a ballot. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Okay. Um, You know, I think, and I think you'll appreciate this, I think games like the Activision Atari games Mm -hmm. need a ton of recognition like pitfall and yeah river raid i think is a really really important game that doesn't get enough recognition for what it did in the vertical shoot 'em up genre and i've talked to metal fro about this like there's so many conventions in river raid that still to this day are present in vertical shooters mm-hmm. and it wasn't the first he and i talked right. about that because we had to do a little research because <laughs> i was just like is river raid the first vertical shooter it's not just to be clear but yeah i think games like that i'm surprised that i don't see them already there to be quite honest yeah i mean if you had to pick one out of that activision which one would you choose my head says Pitfall. My heart says River Raid. I have a real soft spot for River Raid. But yeah, yeah. Pitfall, I think, is more, maybe more influential. Culturally more significant. Culturally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. I think that's a great pick, man. Not something that I even thought of, but I love it. The one I think is going to be funny. I pick Minesweeper. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I feel like this was like one of those games that was just like a, a cultural phenomenon, much like Tetris or Sudoku, you know? Yeah. You know, it's just something that everybody had on their computer or even like Solitaire, you know? Everybody was playing it and you would just spend hours playing this kind of ridiculous thing. You're trying to find out where these minds were and you kind of start off picking squares randomly and then it becomes a strategy as far as where you're going to pick them. And I just thought, you know, for something so simple, I thought it was brilliant. That's cool. Yeah, that's the one I nominated. So they're taking nominations now. You can just go to their website, just type in Video Game Hall of Fame nominations and put something in that you would like to encourage everyone to do that. All right. How about we roll up into pickups and what are you playing? Rich, I have a few pickups. Uh, You want me to go first? Sure. So I took advantage of Play Asia's Black Friday sale. Now, Black Friday was a long time ago as of this recording, but when you order stuff from the other side of the world, it takes a long time to get to you. And Or when you order some stuff just in the same state from a certain limited game (laughs) releaser, it takes a few months to get. That can happen as well. Um, But yeah, and I think I got these like, 
a couple of days after our last recording. So just the timing of it makes it seem like it was a long time ago. But and there were Black Friday sale, by the way, it wasn't anything like super special. But I just was able to find like three or four things that were in a price range that I was happy with. So one of them is Bullet Girls Fantasia for the PS4, which is uh, it's one of those games that has an Asian English release. So it's a 3D anime action game. Another 3D anime action game I got was Girls and Panzer, which is an anime that I haven't watched yet, but I actually recently picked it up on Blu-ray. So as part of my New Year's resolution of watching more anime, I'm going to try and roll into that one sooner rather than later so I can understand the context of the game and to play it. And then I got a game called Grip on the Switch, which is a racing game that's supposed to be pretty good. And for whatever reason, I forget if I got the like European version or the, again, English Asian version, but it was just very cheap. It was like under $10. And I have this like bad habit of like whenever a Switch game is under $10, it catches my attention because it's not very common to see that. So I just kind of grabbed it on a whim, but then uh, a friend of mine told me it's a it's a very good game. So <laughs> you're like my wife and I clothes shopping. We'll have a bag full of clothes. We're like, oh, well, this shirt was only five bucks, right. but we just spent as much money as we would have had we just bought a shirt that like we really like. It just accumulates. You buy it just because it's so cheap. Exactly. The Bullet Girls Fantasia and the Girls in Panzer were not very cheap. So by the time I got to grip, my cart was already like 40 or $50 or whatever. So it's like, <laughs> ah, what's another eight bucks, you know? Right. And then I got a game called The Magicians, which is a PSVR game that's supposed to be really good. Now, I've picked up a couple PSVR games in the past few months and there was a point where I thought I was going to be playing a lot of PSVR but I just kind of fell off of it again, you know, with whatever distractions I was having because of my job and just not feeling like lugging out the equipment and hooking everything up. I haven't been playing a lot of PSVR, but The Magicians is one that is supposed to be really good from what I've heard. And then lastly, I got a game that I've been wanting for a long, long time before it even existed. I wanted this game because... <laughs> As I mentioned earlier in the show, Kill la Kill is by far and away my favorite anime of all time. I've always wanted a Kill la Kill game. I've talked about it on the show many, many times. They finally released the game last year. I was a little bit disappointed to discover that it's a 3D fighting game in the vein of, let's say, those Dragon Ball Z games on the PS2 with a little less flying through the air, but something like that. I just really wanted it because it does have a story mode. It does have a difficulty setting, so I could just set it on easy and button mash my way through the story, and that's good enough for me. And it looks like visually, graphically, it looks really good. So I picked up the Kill Luck Kill game on the Switch, and shout out to my friend and coworker Matt, who works part-time at GameStop, for picking that up for me because it was on sale. Copies on the Switch are apparently... Not always at his store, but he was able to snag one for me. So I appreciate that. And it's part of the reason why I'm re-watching Kill a Kill, so I can get just refreshed on the story before I play the game. So that's all my pickups. Nice, man. 
Well, I'll roll into my pickups with a question to you. Okay. How do you store your Game Boy Advance games? Oh, man. This may rankle some of our listeners. (laughs) In my opinion, and maybe someday I'll share this with people via a YouTube video or some pictures or something. I think I have a really tight Game Boy collection, a really good Game Boy Advance collection, I have a lot of really top-notch, rare and valuable and, and choice titles in my collection. The way I store them is the Game Boy and Game Boy Color games are in a gallon size Ziploc bag, and the Game Boy Advance games are in a quart size Ziploc bag inside the gallon Ziploc bag. <laughs> You just made my skin crawl. <laughs> I know, I know. I used to do the thing with the um, with the baseball card pages in a binder with the Game Boy yeah. games, but the pages just fell apart. It got too unwieldy, and I just didn't like it, so I stopped doing that. Yeah, I hate that. I go to a lot of game stores, and that's how they store a lot of their stuff. And the holes where the rings go through are always torn. Yeah. It's yeah. It, it's awful. So uh, with all my games, I've always tried to find a good way to store them, but also to sort of present them as well. And so my Game Boy games, I learned that those utensil drawers that you put inside your drawer, like the organizers for your utensils. Yeah. I found some nice bamboo ones and I've got them screwed into the side of my bookcase and they actually go perfectly into those. You could stack them on top of each other. Now, some of the Game Boy Color games don't stack as well because they have a funny shape to them. Mm. But getting back to Game Boy Advance, I just kind of had them in this like plastic bin and they were just all lying in there, all unorganized and, uh, you know, had no really good way of presenting them. And it was the only gaming system that I didn't have out where people could see that came into the game room and I could enjoy looking at. So a shout out to uh, one of our listeners, uh, Mighty Q-Dog. He and his wife are video game collectors, great people. And uh, I spoke with him about something he put up. He takes his collection and, you know, the, um, the DS cases, if you recall, has that part in it where you could put Game Boy Advance games. Now, I have no idea what made them do this or why they decided to do that and create housing for Game Boy Advance games. Now, I know that with the early DSs, you could play Game Boy Advance and DS games, so maybe that's why they did it, just for storage purposes. But what I've been doing is I've been just buying up a lot of cheap shovelware DS games and putting my cartridges in those. And I bought some shelving to display it on as well. What I'm using for covers for these, there's a project online called The Cover Project. And I know some of our site members are actually members of this and help donate these covers to it. And what you can do is you can go on there. They have PS3, PS2, Game Boy Advance, Game Boy, all these different types of covers. And what you can do is you can actually print them off from that site and they make ones that fit right in those DS cases and it looks fantastic. And so I have reorganized my collection. That's a big part of what I've been doing over the last month. And I've posted some pictures on um, social media and I found this like really cool modern art looking shelf and it really, really looks nice in my game room. And so I'm happy to finally have a way to display this. And like I said, if you want to see how it looks and it's something you're thinking about, just uh, check me out at the single banana on Twitter and you can see some pictures of that. 
I have picked up a few Game Boy Advance games, and that's why I wanted to bring that up, but I'm not going to talk about those because um, I'm just trying to trim down some of my pickups. For the 2600, I picked up the Sears picture labels of Adventure and Basketball. Basketball is a fairly rare one. And it doesn't pop up often on eBay. I was able to find that. What's cool about this cart and the artwork that's different from the Atari cart is that it has a guy shooting on it. And it looks just like Larry Bird. He was my favorite basketball player as a kid. And so just pretty neat to have in my collection. If you follow me on social media, you'll notice that I also picked up a Sega Master System for five bucks. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was in my little honey hole store and it didn't have the hookups on it. I have a Sega Master System here. I'd picked it up at a flea market several years ago. I can't get it to read the cartridges. So I took this one. I plugged it up. It works great. The $5 one I have has a cracked shell on it. And I'm just going to replace that top shell and uh, give the other one to my neighbor. He can do the work on it to possibly bring it back to life. And so they'll be able to add a uh, Sega Master System to their collection, which is pretty cool. Picked up some complete in-box Genesis games, OutRun, Trazia, Soldiers of Fortune, Red Zone. And my wife actually got me one for my birthday called Generations Lost. Just really building up that Genesis collection now. I picked up a game called On the Ball on Super Nintendo. Have you played this one, Sean? No, I I thought it was funny, just the tweet where you had On the Ball and what was the other one? A D-Ball or something? I'm sure you'll get to that as well. <laughs> Mr. Nuts, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I picked up some balls and nuts this month. Yeah, but yeah, what's what's On the Ball? I've never heard of it. It's sort of like a maze game where you use your controller to tilt the screen. You're trying to get this like marble from one end to the exit. Oh, it's like that old game Labyrinth. Did you ever have that as a child? The wooden toy with the metal ball where you turn the dials and move the... Is it like that? Yeah, it's sort of like that. It's a maze game. They made one, I think it's called Marble Saga, and I can't pronounce the last. It starts with a K. It's on the Wii, and oh, it's yeah. also similar, but you use the motion controls. Yeah, I know That's that what this one. is. Cool. Yeah, it's on Super Nintendo, and it's one that I would say is worth picking up. My buddy Cameron had told me about it. And then, um, as I mentioned, I picked up Mr. Nuts, and then uh, Bomberman 2 I found locally for a really good price. Nice. Uh, I grabbed a copy of Load Runner for PS1, which is a fun kind of strategy game. Really tough, but again, I wanted to add some games to my PS1 collection, and that's one that I had been looking for for quite a while. I picked up a copy of Mr. Bones on Sega Saturn, and this is one that usually goes for a fairly hefty price. I mean, under 100 bucks, but it's not the kind of game that I wanted to spend a whole lot of money on. My local store, for some reason, had a Japanese copy. The cover of it looks like a Grateful Dead album. It's really <laughs> awesome. Cool. And I looked up online, and the game is actually in English. So I went ahead and bought it for like less than 20 bucks. And so really happy to add that to my collection. And you know now I'm not going to have to find the one for the Sega Saturn. I mentioned last month that I had picked up a 3D imager for my Vectrex. And I finally bought a 3D game for this. I got Narrow Escape. It's just this really cool like maze shooter. And it actually also came with the color disc that you actually put in the mask that gives it that 3D look. And so that's my first game. 
I need two more 3D games to actually have a complete Vectrix set. And so that's something that I'm going to go for, you know, once they pop up. One of the games uses the same disc. I think that's called Crazy Coaster, actually uses the same visual disc that Narrow Escape does. And then the other game is Mindstorm 3D, which is basically the game that's built into the system, but they make a 3D version and it actually has another disc that you can insert into the viewer. So I'm going to be looking for those in the near future. My parents came down the weekend after my birthday. As I mentioned, I always keep an Amazon wish list handy. If you have a wife and family members who really don't know what to get you for Christmas, I can't say enough that an Amazon wish list is so awesome. It's how I usually get all my horror movies and, you know, my more modern games. And my mom picked off Death Stranding for PS4, and so that's how I ended up getting that game, which is really cool. Nice. Yeah, I've heard some up and down reviews about it, which, of course, for you and I, it makes it only that much more intriguing, right? Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> so I don't know how long this game is, but you know, it might be something we might want to look into playing at some point in the future. Oh, okay. And then I wanted to mention some pickups I got from our friend Duke Togo. We all communicate with each other on this app that we have. And Chris is always so good about when he goes to a video game store, he will take pictures and say, hey, is there anything anybody wants? And, you know, he'll pick it up and he'll ship it to us. And there was a store that was going out of business recently in his area, which I hate to hear. I know he was friends with the owners, too, and, you know, he had his mixed feelings about it. But they put everything on sale for 75% off. And so by the time that Chris was able to get there, a lot of the stuff had been kind of picked over. But, you know, there's some special things that I was looking for that I found. And you're going to be happy about this first pickup. I got a copies of Ace Combat 2 and 3. Oh, the best ones. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've heard from you. <laughs> and uh, so I definitely picked them up. I also got complete inbox copies of Yar's Revenge and Sequest. Um, I do collect the 2600, some of the rainbow colored boxes, and of course the Activision boxes. And so it was really cool to add those for a good price. High Seas Havoc, I picked that up loose for the Genesis. Neat little platformer. Skull Jagger for the Super Nintendo, another platforming game. And also, Chris had picked up something earlier in the week when he had gone there for himself. But he knows, like, I have the game room and display. And so he sent me an actual boxed Pac-Man phone. Have you ever seen one of these? No, I have not. It is like an orange, like, circular phone, Pac-Man with his mouth closed. And you pull his mouth apart and that's where the touch tone buttons and the receiver are. So you just basically hold Pac-Man up to your ear like he's eating your head. It's really cool. <laughs> Very cool. And then the last pickup I want to mention. <laughs> Dude, I picked up another damn N64 game this month. Oh, man. That is very cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're changing your ways. But the caveat is why I saved it for last. It was Star Fox 64. Oh. I didn't realize I didn't have this in my collection until <laughs> halfway through the month. <laughs> That's great. I had it at one time, and I thought I still had it, but when our buddy Crabmaster opened his store years ago up in Canada, I actually sent him most of my Nintendo 64 collection, and I'm assuming Star Fox 64 was a part of that. So uh -huh. I actually had to pick up the game this month to be able to play it. So uh, 
we'll be talking in a minute to see if that pickup pans out, right? Right. Very cool. All right. Well, we had more pickups than I thought we would there, Rich. Now, on the other hand, the what are you playing is going to be pretty scarce for me. I guess, if you don't mind, I'll just go right into my what are you playing. This might be the first time ever you've gone first, but yeah, please do. (laughs) I think people have heard me talk quite enough. So I did start and then drop a few games. I stopped playing Final Fantasy X-2. I was enjoying the game, but I was actually, I didn't feel like lugging around the strategy guide again, which I did for Final Fantasy X, but I just wasn't into it with X-2. So I will hopefully go back to that someday because I was enjoying it quite a bit. I tried a game called Avalon Code on the Nintendo DS, which again is a game that I was like enjoying, but I was just in that three-week period where my brain was scrambled from my job and I just couldn't stay with it, so I put that down. I am currently playing two games that I hope to finish (laughs) besides our playthrough games. One of them is Tales of Hearts R, which is a game from the Tales of series, which I'm a huge fan of. This game was originally on the Nintendo DS in Japan, but it was remade for the PlayStation Vita and released physically, I believe, as a GameStop exclusive. And I actually got my copy way back from Disposed Hero in a trade. So I'm playing that on my Vita, and it is very, very good. And I'm enjoying it quite a bit. The story starts off very strongly. And the combat system is very fun. So I'm hoping to stick with it. And it's not the kind of game where you need a strategy guide. It's very clear what you need to do, what dungeon you need to go next, what city you need to go next. So I am just kind of cruising through it. Uh, I just started a couple days ago, but I'm, I'm enjoying it. The other game I'm playing that I'm about at the halfway point of and I'm intending to keep playing it and finish it because it's really really good is Attack on Titan 2 on the PlayStation 4. I've been seeing your little updates pop across my uh, PS4 screen. (laughs) Yeah and I was tweeting some videos from the PS4 sharing capabilities because it's such a cool high-flying action hacking slashing slice and dicing kind of game (laughs) that there are just some kills that i make that i'm like oh i'm gonna capture some video of that and tweet it out because this game is just so cool but um yeah i really highly recommend first of all i recommend the attack on titan anime it's probably my second favorite anime of all time and i'm utterly obsessed with it and My wife makes fun of me, if not is a little perturbed by the fact that I'm addicted to buying, I don't know about every, but most of the Attack on Titan officially released t-shirts because when the anime was huge, they made tons and tons of merch for it. So now there's all these like used t-shirts floating around on eBay that you can get for like a buck or two. And I have quite the collection. I think I have like damn near 20 of them like different ones so it's uh it's outrageous but it's awesome but anyway back to the game i gotta tell you i talked about hyrule warriors i talked about fire emblem warriors way back when i first got my switch 
I think I've played other ones, but I've never played like a Dynasty Warriors or Samurai Warriors game. But all of these licensed spinoff games made by Omega Force are so good that it's just making me think like, I really got to rank Omega Force as like one of my favorite developers because all of their games that I've played are just fantastic. And Attack on Titan 1 was great. And Attack on Titan 2 in certain ways is even better. Now, a lot of people say it's not different enough to be a sequel. It's kind of retreads a lot of the season one stuff. But from what I understand, it does cover season two as well and season three via a DLC package. But one of the things that I thought I wouldn't like about the game is that you create your own character, where in the first game you're playing the characters from the show In this game, you create your own character, so I wasn't sure how I would feel about that, but I actually really like it because it allows you to make a female character, so of course I did that, and then you get to interact with the main characters of the anime, and it inserts you into the plot points of the show, and I thought that was actually really cool. I didn't know how I would feel about it, but I actually love it. And then all the things they added, they have this cool like sniping mode, but it's within the context of the show. Like you pull out almost like one of those weird like telescopes that a pirate would have, like a, you know, the one handed like scope. Retractable. Yeah, that you like put up to your eye and you spy a Titan from a distance and then you could do a sneak attack on them. Like they added things like that that really make the game very deep if you want it to be. So I just love it. You know, it got me thinking about like licensed games in general as well. Like licensed games used to have a a bad name, you know, back Mm -hmm. in the, like the, let's say the Nintendo game. Of course there were great ones, but there were many, many really bad licensed games and maybe it's the same. Maybe there's really bad ones out there too, but I, I feel like I'm playing Attack on Titan 2 and South Park, The Stick of Truth at the same time right now. And it's like, these games are fantastic. And they are so true to the source material. They're great, great video game representations of what you would want to be doing in something like Attack on Titan, just flying around, zipping around with the equipment, slashing with swords. And it's just awesome. Just an awesome game. So... Rich, we've talked about Attack on Titan in the past, and I think you had watched some of the anime. Are you still... Did you ever finish it or finish the first season or try the first game? I do own the first game. I have not played it yet. I did watch a bit of the first season of Attack on Titan, but it's just something that just kind of went by the wayside. And it's only because most of my viewing is with my wife. Mm -hmm. So I rarely have time to watch something on my own. She's just really not in the anime. So I remember that the Titans kind of creeped her out as well. So they're creepy looking. (laughs) Uh, So uh, yeah, she wasn't into it. So when I was watching, it would be like when she would fall asleep, I would put it on the TV and watch it like really late night. Yeah, I don't have much of the energy that I used to have for that anymore. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Well, if you ever get a chance to check out the game, it, I mean, the first game just tells the story of the first season. So if you if you think you're never going to watch the anime, you might just, just go for it, and that's how you can get the story. So that's it for me, Rich. So what are you playing? 
Well, I was having trouble figuring out what games I had been playing. Of course, my three-year-old is still obsessed with coming into the game room and playing, which is a joy for me. But one of the things I had been playing the most isn't actually a video game, but one of my pinball machines. And so I wanted to talk about that for a minute. I picked up a machine several years ago. It's by Bally. I think it's around 1980. It's called Frontier. A lot of people make jokes about this machine because it's got this guy that looks like Kenny Rogers on uh, the back glass. And there's these wolves. And then on the play field, he's like shirtless with a knife fighting a bear. And so it's like, it's really, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I love it. But the thing about this game is um, Papa, which is the Professional and Amateur Pinball Association, which hosts the tournaments. I've actually played in one up in um, Pittsburgh. They featured this game several years ago, and it has some really, really great rules. It's a really cool game. So now it's one of these games that it's fairly rare. It's hard to find, but a lot of people want it. But anyway, the story is I picked it up in Virginia about two hours away several years ago, and I got it on the cheap. But the play field in the middle of it looked really, really rough. It was really worn. And they don't make decals to go over the inserts, which is the portion of the machine where the light shines through, you know, on the play field. Mm -hmm. Nobody had reproduced those or anything. So it looked rough. I mean, it still played, played well, but it looked really bad. Well, probably about a year and a half ago, I bought this thing called a hardtop. Uh, this company came out, and though there are people that reproduce play fields and make new play fields for old machines... Frontier is one of those games where they didn't make a whole lot of them, so it's not worth anybody's time to make new play fields. And so what happened was this company came up with this idea of this thing called a hardtop, and it's basically just an overlay that goes on your play field, but it's not thin. It's pretty thick. And what you have to do is you have to sand the entire play field down and adjust your inserts. And to do that, you basically have to take all the original artwork off of it, which is... For purists, it's kind of like, you know, do you really want to do this or not? You know, Uh, it was a hard decision for me to make, but I'd heard good things about it. I heard it played just like a real pinball machine. You know, a lot of times when you do overlays and stuff, they don't play right. But my buddy had it for over a year, putting this thing on it. And I actually just got it back last month. And man... It is beautiful. It plays fantastic. It's become one of my favorite machines. People that have seen it and people have come to my house just really, really love it. Really happy to have this thing in part of my collection. Just been playing the absolute hell out of it since I've had it. And uh, I'd kind of gotten away from going out to my garage and playing a lot of my pinball machines. And this has kind of rekindled that bug that I've had. And so, yeah, that's what I've been playing for most of the month, really. I mean, not technically a video game, but video game related, I would say. Yeah, it definitely counts. And that is a really cool story. (laughs) Yeah. I think I picked up this machine in Virginia for like 500 bucks years ago. And now it's so high in demand that they're getting over like 3000 for this game. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm just so glad that I picked it up anyway, even though the play field was uh, pretty roached.
right, Rich. Well, it's almost time to roll into our main topic of discussion, which is the Star Fox series. Of Thank games. goodness, right? I mean, hell. <laughs> We're getting there. <laughs> Uh, as usual, we're starting off with our question of the month, which we put out to our listeners via Twitter. The question is, who is your favorite pilot from any piece of fictional media and why? Now, Rich, this was an interesting one for me because on my Twitter account, I have Star Wars muted and I have old Star Wars terminology <laughs> muted because I don't like Star Wars and I don't want to see a million tweets about it every day. So... At Congratulations. First, <laughs> at first, I thought there were no answers to this. But <laughs> as soon as I unmuted some of the tweets, uh, I saw we got a lot of Star Wars action, which is fine. If that's what you're into, that's great. And if that's what makes you happy, then God bless you. So speaking of which, let's start with our good friend Adam Bickman 2K. He says, Chewbacca. I'm such a fan, I know all of his lines. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to talk about Star Wars, at least have good lines like that. Yeah, that was good. That was a good gag. Um, Collector Cast, which is Duke Togo Chris, he said, Ted Stryker from Airplane. Poor guy could never get over his drinking problem. <laughs> I haven't seen this movie in years, but he posted a, a gif of, the <laughs> the character pouring the glass into his like face which is uh that's the joke yeah it's um, great engineer mike he said wedge antilles the og hotshot pilot from the star wars franchise the dude was part of every major space battle and survived all of them and he also added if i'm not mistaken i do believe wedge was in the rise of skywalker as well and uh, somebody confirmed that that is, in fact, true. So that's pretty neat. I didn't notice that, but I, I did see the new film recently with the kids. We enjoyed it. Cool. Buried on Mars, going back to the movie Airplane, he posted, um, what did they call this in the movie? The autopilot, which is the, the <laughs> yeah, blow-up blow autopilot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great answer. <laughs> so that was good. Um Steven Eider actually posted Dr. Strangelove <laughs> riding the bomb at the end of the movie. I thought that was a pretty funny one. Yeah, what is that character's name? Um, I don't know, actually, because that's not Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove is the guy with the glasses, right? So I don't remember. Is it Slim Pickens? Is that his name or is that the actor's name? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, butthole's getting dirty, man. Uh-oh, yeah, we're leaving ourselves <laughs> open for some butthole penetration. Whoa. <laughs> Maybe I can make you blush once in a while. <laughs> forget, I'm the editor. <laughs> uh, that's right. All right, moving right along. Next, we got Steve the Atari guy. He just said, well, he didn't say, he put a gif of Han Solo. A couple more. We got Corey Robertson. At first, he posted a graphic, who is John Galt? So if you don't get that reference, it's a reference to Atlas Shrugged, the Ayn Rand's novel. And he added, someone has to fly you to Galt's Gulch, which is a little bit of a spoiler. And I'm just going to leave that there and encourage people to read Atlas Shrugged. But that, that was a great answer. And I have one more from Mrs. Grey Ghost. And she actually texted it to me so I could say it properly because I wouldn't remember this. 
First of all, she sent me a whole Wikipedia article on this guy, which I am not going to read, but she <laughs> she said, uh, Frank Lapidus from Lost, pilot of Ajira Flight 316 to Guam, but some of the Oceanic Six are on board and he knows he isn't making it to Guam. So that's for the fans of Lost. I've never seen the show. I love Lost. Yeah, great show. Okay, so you know what she's referring to there. Uh Absolutely. Cool, cool. As for me, Rich, I would say uh, Shinji, Asuka, and Rey from Neon Genesis Evangelion. And that may seem like cheating because it's actually three characters, but they all pilot the Avas and they all represent the personality of Hideaki Anno, who is the creator of the anime. And Shinji is shy and scared in the face of his responsibilities. Asuka is brash and overconfident in the face of her self-doubt. And Rei is... um, I can't talk too much about Rei without spoilers, but Rei is just the quiet, mysterious one, let's just say. That's one of the all-time animes that, you know, you want to see if you want to get into anime. And it was recently put on Netflix. It was a little gimped by editing and weird choices that they made. But you can watch it pretty easily now, which wasn't always the case. So that's my choice for the pilot slash pilots of uh, fictional media, my favorites. So what about yours? Well, before I get into that, I just want to do a little ass wipe <laughs> here and uh, let you know that Slim Pickens is the actor. So I was correct about that. And he plays a guy named Major King Kong. Okay. So there you go. <laughs> Good. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. My pick is from one of my favorite cartoons growing up. Oddly enough, this month. I'm selling off most of my G.I. Joe collection from 1982 to 1987. I just kind of had it in a box. I used to have it displayed, but now I don't have any room in my game room to do it. So I've decided to just take that part of my collecting life and just pass it on to other people who enjoy it. And just using it to fund my game collection. I've had some really good pickups from selling some of this stuff. But my favorite pilot in association with that is Wild Bill, the pilot of the Dragonfly. Do you remember this guy? No, I know a guy named Wild Bill 52, but <laughs> yeah. no, um I don't remember this character specifically. I used to watch G.I. Joe when I was a kid, but this is one of those shows that I remember very little of it. Like Thundercats is very fresh in my mind. He-Man is very fresh in my mind still to this day, but G.I. Joe a lot of that is lost to the memory hole, and so Wild Bill is not one that I'm, I can picture in my mind. Well, this may help. He was the guy that always wore the cowboy hat and the shades and just talked like a Texan. Yeehaw! You know, <laughs> okay. just huge, like, Texan stereotype. Because you live there, you can definitely appreciate. So, yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's my pick. Nice. Very cool. Well, the reason we came up with that question was because we're talking about the Star Fox series, and specifically we played Star Fox 1 and 2 and Star Fox 64. Our participants this month, Rich, were you and I, Metal Fro, Dougley007, Disposed Hero, Easy Racer, Mr. Stubbs, 
Link 4-1, Razor Knuckles, and Wild Bill 52. And I got to say, when we uh, wave the Nintendo titles, everybody flocks to the playthrough, right? Yeah, just wave <laughs> that Nintendo flag, man. Yeah. Everybody comes running. It's like a dinner bell. Yeah, which is, you know, it's fine. It's very much appreciated, but it always does the trick. Even if it's one of the lesser known, it's not lesser known, but one of the lesser beloved uh, series is. So I have some nuts and bolts and a little bit of development notes. And once again, I went to Norm the Gaming Historian for my research, which it gives it a more personal touch than just reading Wikipedia. So... Shout out once again to Norm. He just does great work with his gaming historian channel. We both met him. He's a very nice guy. And uh, I use his videos for this research. So Star Fox was released in 1993 in all regions. And the series is known as Star Wing in Europe because of copyright issues. It was co-developed between Nintendo EAD and Argonaut Games, which is a British company. Developer Dylan Cuthbert, who was 18 years old at the time, created a 3D engine that was used in a Game Boy game called X, which was released in Japan only. To develop a 3D game on the Super Nintendo, Argonaut had to create the Super Effects chip to accelerate the calculations required to make the 3D run smoothly. There were many concepts discussed for using this technology to create a game, but Shigeru Miyamoto insisted on having an on-rails flying game, and that was the start of the development of Star Fox. Star Fox 2... Development began after the release of the first game, and it was intended as a direct sequel with the same team at Argonaut and Cuthbert at the lead of development. The game is non-linear with a galaxy map and quick drop-in levels. It was announced in 1995 at CES, but canceled later in the same year because Nintendo deemed the technology to be lagging behind its competitors and Nintendo's new console, the Nintendo 64. The game was completed and a ROM leaked in 2002 from one of the developers. Dylan Cuthbert claims it wasn't he who leaked the ROM, so nobody actually knows who did. The game was officially released in 2017 on the SNES Mini. It was also released in 2019 on the Nintendo Switch as part of the Nintendo Switch Online Super NES Collection. And just briefly for Star Fox 64, this was developed solely by Nintendo EAD. It was released in 1997 in all regions. It was conceived not as a sequel to the first two games, but a reboot of the first game. Development included elements from the first two games, though. Notable additions are voice acting and vastly improved graphics over the Super Nintendo versions. A 3DS remake of Star Fox 64 was released in 2011. And I think we have to talk about the inclusion of the Rumble Pack with Star Fox 64. Yeah. Um, just before we forget, I don't want to pass it by. It's one of the major technology innovations that is still with us to this day is Rumbly controllers and 
Star Fox 64 included what is called the rumble pack for the Nintendo 64 controller, which is something that clips into the bottom of the controller in the memory card slot. It takes two AA batteries, but it gives you the rumble function. And from all accounts, this is the first time this was done. So I thought I'd throw that out there. That's basically uh, a very condensed version of the development story of those three games. So I should mention the first Star Fox game was a big hit, and that's why they started development Star Fox 2 right away, even though that game ended up getting canceled. And the same thing with Star Fox 64. It sold very well right off the bat. It was actually a huge hit for Nintendo and is widely regarded as one of the best games on the 64 and regarded by some people as one of the best games of all time. So we can definitely get into that. As usual, Rich, I want to get into our histories personally with the game. And I'll start with you just because I believe that yours is brief, if existent at all. Is that true or am I off base? It's very true. Okay. I did play the game when it came out. As I've mentioned in the past, a good friend of mine's dad owned a video store and they were renting these games at the time. And... I did play Star Fox when it came out. I didn't put a lot of time into it. And, uh, you know, for reasons I think we'll talk about maybe later on in the show. But I do have an actual history with it when it came out. That was the only game. Uh, I had not played Star Fox 64. And, of course, I'd never played Star Fox 2 because I didn't have a copy until I received one in the mail this past December from... Uh, Good friend of mine. Right. There you go. Cool. Well, for me, I have a deep and strong nostalgia and history with Star Fox 1 and Star Fox 64. Growing up, Star Fox was really revolutionary as far as 3D graphics. I had never seen anything like this on a console. There were some games on the PC when I was younger. One comes to mind... It was this weird flight simulator called Corn Cob. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It was a no. it was a DOS game, and you can probably find it and play it on DOSBox. I'm sure it's out there, but every once in a while, I'll pull up a YouTube video of it for nostalgia purposes. But very similar graphics, just like 3D, really rudimentary polygons. Also, a game like uh, Race Driving, Hard Driving kind of comes to mind for this visual style. Mm-hmm. I mean... Race Driving had like a Genesis and Super Nintendo versions, but I think Star Fox and the Super FX chip was kind of a, a step above any of that stuff. And me and Jesse and some of our other friends when we were younger just played the hell out of Star Fox. And I remember liking that it was a game that you could play and beat in a couple hours or you know if you did the right things you could beat it even quicker than an hour so i always enjoyed that aspect of it and then later on the same thing was with the 64 i remember when we were younger i didn't have a 64 but jesse did and we would play tons of goldeneye tons of star fox 64 you know the same story as many many kids our age at the time you know 
sleepover parties. You know, I know I remember his dad was really into Goldeneye and he would play, you know, the Star Fox multiplayer with us as well. So I just have a deep nostalgia and love for these games from back then. And then when I got a 64 of my own, I was actually in my 20s. And, you know, one of the games I made sure to get was Star Fox. And I still love the game. I still beat it like at least once a year. The uh, 3DS version is really good. I have played through that a couple times. I have it on every virtual console that it's available on, on my Wii's and my Wii U's and my Switch and all that stuff. So I have it like very available. I can play it on multiple different TVs and setups in my house with my collection. So I really love these games and I was super excited when Star Fox 2 was finally officially released and we'll talk about how odd that is and how kind of cool it is that you know nintendo's finally acknowledging its existence kind of thing so yeah that's where i'm at i was so excited to play these games and to kind of share them with you and and with the community so do you want to just start with the first game rich what was your experience coming back to this and i'm i'm gonna assume that you played everything on original hardware. I know you played Star Fox 2 because I sent you that repro cart, but I'm assuming as well you played the original game on a Super Nintendo and 64 on an actual 64. Absolutely. Yeah, I played everything on original hardware. And, you know, I, I feel like playing Star Fox 2 on Super Nintendo, that was the console it was meant to be on. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to play it that way as well, which I'm glad I could. Awesome. I will say that I played Star Fox on the Wii and Star Fox 2 on the Wii via emulation. And then with Star Fox 64, I actually started playing it on the Wii U, but I had trouble with the controls because it's really tailored to the N64 controller. I did not feel like digging out an N64 and hooking it up to actually play (laughs) the real game, which... You know, shame on me, whatever. But what I ended up playing it on was on the Wii with a GameCube controller. And uh, that actually worked really well for me. So that's how I played 64. So, yeah, let's go into the gameplay and we'll talk about our experience with each title. These are 3D on-rail shooters. You're flying into the screen, basically. So picture something like the classic Star Wars arcade game, if you know what that is. You can pitch up and down, turn left and right. You can do different maneuvers with the shoulder buttons, like tilting and spinning and something that they call it a barrel roll. That's not actually a barrel roll. It's an aileron roll, which is a big meme. And (laughs) uh, I can explain that in a second, but... You have these different maneuvers and then you shoot and then you have these screen clearing bombs and that's consistent through all three games. So that's your basic framework. And then in all three games, you also have companions who fly around with you and they can take damage from you. That was actually something that's somewhat unique to a game like this, Rich. What were your thoughts on... Just the gameplay in general and then having like a whole squad flying around you while you're doing these missions. Yeah, I mean, I like the 
idea of it. I did like the characters a lot. I thought it was really cool. These like anamorphic characters, you know, I think that made the game a lot of fun, especially Star Fox 2. When you get into that, it seems like there's a lot more characters to choose from. I liked having the other pilots. I felt like they weren't much of a benefit. Oh, if yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> they're not helping you out. It's usually just you saving their ass yep. all the time. I don't know, and you could speak to this, if you're able to save them all through to the end of the game, I mean, is there any type of special ending, or if they get shot down, do they ever come back later? They don't really get shot down, they go in for repairs, and so maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so I'm not someone who plays these games for score. We should mention that in all three games, you get a score. In 64, I know you get one at the end of every level, and then a grand total score you don't get a different ending, but you get this different like end slate screen based on how well you did. So not playing for score, I don't know if losing companions affects that. But like you said, if one of them gets KO'd, you lose them for the next level, which to your point doesn't matter that much because they don't do I mean, you you just you're <laughs> right. just flying around, and you know, Slippy's like, "Oh, help me!" You know, like it's just constant. You have to help them and shoot ships that are chasing them. So, for me, they kind of become a non-factor. Like I've played Star Fox sixty four so much, I have like a reflexive action for that first level especially where it's like okay the first guy's gonna chase slippy then they're gonna chase the falco and then it's like i know what's gonna happen so i'm uh, just not even worried about it or reacting to the actual um dialogue i'm just going through the motions kind of but yeah it's not squad based in any way it's just they're there flying around you and you almost have to be careful not to shoot them because they just fly into your field of vision constantly. That's kind of one of the things that disappoints me a little bit. I wish that they could have some sort of AI where they could help you out. You know, somewhat, if you keep them alive, I feel like there should have been some sort of benefit to you for doing that, you know, which I, I really didn't see in the game. But like I said, I love all the characters. They're so iconic and they're they're cool. And they all have like their different personalities too, which is really neat for a game this early. Yeah, I like that, especially when I was a kid. I remember, like, you keep saying, especially in 64, because the voice acting makes a lot of difference. In the Super Nintendo games, it's just kind of like this sound effect, like, you know, like, we actually used to make fun of all the different sound effects because we used to just go blah blah bling blamage like what the hell is he saying you know like <laughs> and yeah. we used to always just like chirp at each other those sound effects because we thought it was funny but with the voice acting i like the characters and they just the personalities are strong because you have like slippy who's just kind of this idiot not great pilot but he's sweet you know what i mean and then falco's mm-hmm. like the brash like show off hot shot guy and then right peppy is like the mentor you know he's the one who says oh you're becoming more and more like your father fox you know like he's right. just he's just the uh the old wise one of the group so I feel like definitely in 64, you can kind of bond with the team in that way because their characters are so strong, which is good because this is an RPG with 
tons of text or a story. It's mm -hmm. just these little quips and catchphrases that they're spouting out, but it gives them a personality that helps you kind of bond and feel like you're part of a team, even if the gameplay doesn't really lend itself to that. Yeah, and just kind of to bounce off like where we were talking about with the voice acting. I don't know if you noticed this in the 64 version, but man, when they're talking, their mouths are moving so fast. It just doesn't really line up with the voice acting, which, you know, I understand these are earlier titles, so I, I do give it some leadway. But man, the characters in the 64 look like they're having a damn seizure or something when yeah. they're talking. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought it was much better done in the earlier games on the Super Nintendo. It's kind of odd. Yeah, because in the Super Nintendo versions, they're more like um, an anime pixel art kind of portrait that's just a little bit animated. Apparently, according to Norm's video, the appearance of the N64 portraits was because uh, Shigeru Miyamoto wanted them to look like puppets. And apparently mm. that made the animations for them easier to program and develop to just have them just flapping like that. So that was by choice and it was a functional choice as well. So I hope that illuminates a little bit of why that is that way. I really don't have a problem with them not speaking English or any known language for that matter. I kind of like that in the original games because it, it just makes it seem like otherworldly, you know? Yeah, that's true too. It's and there's a lot of games like that, like Civilization or The Sims, Simlish. You know, a yeah, lot of yeah. games have like gibberish kind of language stuff going on. And I think you're right; it fits really good, especially for the technology at the time. Um, and there is a tiny little bit of actual voice sampling in the first game too. Um, when you're flying out your ship in the first level in the opening sequence, it's a little bit hard to understand, but there's a overhead PA voice saying emergency, emergency. And mm -hmm. then he says something else that's almost impossible to understand. <laughs> <laughs> but he is saying something. But yeah, most of the other voices are just uh, blip, 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 blip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so while we're talking about the characters, Rich, we can actually just knock out the story in like two or three sentences. Because sure. again, this is this is just a shooter. And there is a story and there's probably more lore than i'm gonna give it credit for here so by all means check out the extended universe of star fox if you're into this kind of thing but it's basically it was conceived as like kind of a star wars star trek type of story with good guys versus bad guys your planet is corneria you're the good guys and the bad guy andros lives on venom which is where you know the other planet on the other side of the solar system that is uh where the bad guys live and he's some kind of scientist or doctor and he has a history with your father and there's more to this in like the attract mode of Star Fox 64 or when you first start the game there's actually a narrated little cutscene but i feel like you don't need to know any of this to play the game. The story to me, again, is more just that moment-to-moment -moment gameplay and just mingling with your squad and then also the enemies and the bosses that Andros has sent to fight you. Yeah. And th those are also very colorful and entertaining as well, especially in 64. Yeah, it's that basic plot line of save the galaxy. You know, yep. <laughs> it's, it's that simple. 
And I just got to say one thing. Why in the hell are monkeys always evil? Oh, Have man. you noticed this? I don't know. I mean, yeah. like Mojo Jojo, Powerpuff Girls, Grodd, wow. Planet of the Apes are all villains, Wizard of Oz. I don't know, man. Somebody needs to give monkeys some love. Well, I will say this. I don't know if that's a Japanese thing per se, but the use of the animal characters was an idea from Shigeru Miyamoto, and it was inspired by him visiting some kind of shrine to foxes. Uh And I'm really butchering it and not giving (laughs) a good enough detailed account of what it was. But again, it's in Norm's video that Miyamoto went to some kind of shrine that was dedicated to a fox that's part of Japanese folklore, and some of the other animals are as well. So I don't know if... You know, monkeys being bad guys is a Japanese thing or an Asian culture thing. Like, I actually don't know, but good question. Yeah. Research. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All this journey's my deceit. So yeah, so I think the original Star Fox is like the most linear of the three games. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, how did you enjoy just, you're just kind of flying through level to level and there's boss battles at the end of each level. And then 
eventually you get to a final boss. Now there's branching paths, but they're based on kind of esoteric actions that you take in the levels that aren't clear to the player. And it takes either playing them for years or reading an FAQ to know what to do. Mm. So even for me, even now, like I know some of the tricks and some of the ways to change the paths, but for my playthroughs, I just kind of cruised through and ended up just hoping I was getting an easier path rather than a more difficult one. So as far as the first game, just talk a little bit about like the gameplay in general and how you felt about like the pseudo linearity and what level you're going to get spit into and, and what you thought about your quote unquote choices. You know, in playing the game and obviously not having the manual, I didn't know that you could change the path that it would actually branch in this game. There are three paths, right? One, two, and three that you can choose. And I assume that's just basically a a simple linear path each way. You can actually see the menu screen and you can see where you'll be going next, whether it be an asteroid belt, a planet, you know, what have you. So I thought that one was like easy and three was more difficult. So that's the way I had it in my head. Apparently I was completely wrong on that, (laughs) which is interesting. And so, you know, that's how the first game goes. The second game, Star Fox 2, has an overworld map the same way, but you actually have movement. You don't just follow a path. You can choose where you're going next. There are things that are attacking the planet that are coming at you, like missiles or enemy aircraft. And so you can cut those things off and kind of switch up the order of how you're going to attack things. So I thought that was cool, and I thought that was an awesome decision. And... I'm a little surprised that in Star Fox 64, they didn't carry on with that. They went back to the more linear path that was in the first game. Yes, but Star Fox 64 is the one where I definitely know that some of the things you do in the levels dictate which path you take. I don't know them all by any means, but I know some of the examples are... Like in the one level where you go into all range mode and the wolf team starts attacking you and you have to fight them and then disarm the bomb, you get a different path whether or not you disarm the bomb in time. Then there's another planet where you can either lose or rescue Slippy Toad. If you lose Slippy Toad, you go to the lava level. Okay. And so there's there's all these kind of contextual I wouldn't call them choices. They're almost gameplay consequences. Right. A big one for me that I got actually stuck on for a while was the train level with the flying thing that's tethered to the train. I don't know if you remember or encountered this boss, but... Uh, No, let me just say I fucking suck at these games. So, yeah, I, I I didn't get very far on any of them. I played them all. Spent some time on them, but I, I'm terrible at these games. So, yeah, that's probably a, a big part of the reason why I didn't notice any type of branching paths in 64. Yeah. I'm just going to say right off the bat to make it clear. I really, really like Star Fox 2. I do, too. And yeah. Yeah. So there's this kind of weird thing where when the ROM was floating around in the 2000s and in the, you know, Super Nintendo emulation scene, people spoke very highly of the game. But then when it was released in 2017, 2019, got a lot of attention. People scrutinized it and didn't really treat it as this kind of 
a literally like a pirate's treasure floating around the internet. Or like a part of the canon, right? Right. So now it's just this, oh, it's just novelty. Nintendo decided to just kind of throw out into the world. And oh, if you play it, it just kind of sucks and, and blah, blah, blah. So it's really weird if you watch like official mainstream reviews of the game from 2017 and 2019. They're not very favorable, but I think the game kicks ass. I think it's very innovative with the like you were saying the real-time strategy elements of the world map that you can actually fly around you can use warps you can change your characters you can intercept the missiles that are being shot at corn area you can play it as much as you want i actually remember the first time i played the game i beat it in like 20 minutes and i thought wow that was weird like what a short game but then when i played it for this playthrough I explored more. I played more of the levels and it ended up taking me twice as long. And I really enjoyed that element of it. So there's a lot of player choice in Star Fox 2. And I understand that the game is easy. Some of the levels are pretty simple, but the switching between the walker and the flying craft and then like hitting the switches, going underground, changing back and forth, like all that stuff was just really cool and exciting. Totally and I, agree. I just I really liked it. So And let me ask you, as far as the missiles and stuff that could fly by you, I know that you have like a, a missile protection. Now is that always gonna take those out? Or if those missiles or whatnot make it to the planet do you lose the game because i feel like there's a a bigger part of strategy in star fox 2 because of that and i always felt like if anything was getting close to the planet i needed to fly back and take care of that which for me made the game longer and you know i didn't beat any of these games obviously but i thought it was kind of neat and it made me kind of backtrack and be aware of my surroundings because i didn't know what was going to happen if these things hit my planet Yeah, so I didn't game over from this, but Corneria has a life bar, so a Ah, number of of missiles can hit it, but I'm guessing if that life bar depletes all the way, you're probably going to get a game over. I never got to that point. I'm just assuming that that's what happens, so... But yeah, as you mentioned, they took all of that element of it out of Star Fox 64, which I think is fine. It's kind of weird because you don't know what you don't know. And yeah. I have such an entrenched love for Star Fox 64. You know, whenever the first time I played Star Fox 2 was when the SNES Mini came out. When that came out in 2017, the ROM got dumped onto the internet like instantly. And I put it on my Wii and played the game. And I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. It didn't make me think, oh, I wish these real-time elements were in Star Fox 64. It just didn't work that way for me mentally. Mm -hmm. It's only playing all three of them in a row that you kind of see that progression. And then you acknowledge that they took things out of both games to put them in 64, and that just wasn't one of them that they ended up using. So it's just an interesting way to look at your timelines, you know what I mean? Yeah, and for me... You know, basically playing all of these games for the first time. I mean, I did put a little time into the original game, but I kind of get a different perspective. Yeah. And so for me, it feels like they took a step back in making 64. And that's just personally, and I guess it's probably just because of my play style. And you probably don't notice it as much because you have more of a nostalgia for it. But I don't understand why they didn't go with some of these choices that they made in the second game. I just thought, 
a lot of it was just really, really brilliant. Awesome. So one of the things I kind of noticed about the game as well was how it goes from third person a lot of times to first person. For somebody who's basically a newcomer to this series, I, I felt like this was a little bit distracting. And a lot of times when you can do the barrel rolls and stuff like that, it just didn't feel like it translated quite as well to the first person perspective as it did to the third. Yeah, so this was brought up in the forum. Did you know that you can change back to the third person view by hitting select? Of course I didn't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I don't I don't like the first person view at all and I never use it. So okay, yeah. that might help you. I didn't even <laughs> realize that I could barrel roll until I saw comments on the um forums cuz I was just pressing it once and I was like, "Why can't I barrel roll? I can make, get it to go sideways, you know?" Yeah. But yeah. you you know you have to hit it twice. Then another thing I wanted to bring up about Star Fox 2, which I thought was awesome as well, is you get to have a partner as you're playing it. And you can switch on the fly by pressing select. I did figure this one out. Yeah. So if your energy is getting low, you can switch to your teammate and do your battles. And I thought that was kind of cool. And, you know, the crafts have different abilities, too. Some of them have larger shields. Some of them are more powerful. Some of them are faster than others. And so I thought this was uh, a very neat concept as well with the second game that, again, didn't carry over, which was shocking to me. Yeah, I understand. So, Rich, since you didn't finish the game, I want to talk a little bit about the bosses, especially like late game bosses. Now, Again, I haven't seen them all because of the branching paths. And, you know, sometimes I'll be playing 64 and end up in a level that if I've ever played it, I've only played it like once or twice. But there's a theme to the bosses where there's like very obvious weak spots, especially in the first game because of the limited color palette. Yeah. The bosses will usually have some kind of yellow or orange targets that you can shoot. I found playing the original Star Fox, it's a little challenging to hit those, but I have like a little bit of muscle memory for each one. Like I know exactly how to like position the R wing to, <laughs> to shoot those little, little dots that look like, um, paper candy. I don't know if you remember <laughs> that, like, you know, those little dots on a flat plane that you have to shoot. Yeah. But, um, the bosses are a lot of standard video game stuff, you know, like pattern recognition, avoidance, and then attack, and then very obvious weak spots. And then they do change forms as well. Like there's a boss where you shoot parts of the shield and then when you weaken the shield, it kind of launches out at you and you have to avoid it. And then there's more different weak spots to attack. So I thought all the boss battles that I've encountered, they were interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything you want to add to that or anything you can speak to on any of the bosses you encountered? Uh, no, I mean, I can agree with that. It's, you know, very interesting. Um, I, I thought the bosses were probably a little more interesting in 64 than they were in the original game. As I said, I, I didn't get very far. I, I saw a few of the bosses, but I, I agree. A lot of it is just pattern recognition and knowing where to be when that enemy boss fires certain weapons. I feel like it was adequate, but 
and maybe this is because I didn't get far enough, but I, I didn't really think there's anything special about it. You know, it's just kind of like, okay, this lights up. This is what I need to hit. And that mainly pertains to the first two Star Fox games, where Star Fox 64, it was more like there are parts of these bosses that you had to hit to make them fall off. True. I will note, and participants and listeners who've beaten the games know this, that the Andros battles in Star Fox and Star Fox 64 are very similar. And again, keeping in mind that Star Fox 64 was conceived as a reboot rather than a sequel, this does make sense. But Mm -hmm. in the first game, you face this like mask-like entity where you have to shoot out the eyes and then can't remember my mind's blurring between the two different (laughs) versions of this boss but i know in 64 because i've done it so many times there's these two like hands that come at you (laughs) and do different attacks one attack it like does a swipe that's almost impossible to avoid and then a different attack is the hand will just kind of come at you like point it at you and it will shoot out at you and then come back But each hand on the palm of it has one of those weak spots. So your best plan of attack, if you have good aim, is to destroy both of those hands as quick as you can. Mm -hmm. And then to beat Andros in 64, he does this big inhale move where he tries to suck in your ship to eat it. And then what you have to do is shoot a bomb into his mouth. And Uh he chews it up for a second and his head kind of... His head doesn't explode, but you can see the cool effects of an explosion going off within <laughs> his in his head. So uh, you do that a couple times. And then, again, I'm kind of bouncing back and forth and blurring between Star Fox and Star Fox 64. But then at the end of the first Star Fox, there's just this weird cube with Andross's face on it that bounces around and you have to shoot the hell out of it to kill it. And if you don't, the mask comes back and it's a real pain because you have to shoot the eyes out again and everything Mm. with 64 Andross's face comes off and it's like this like skeleton kind of, and it gets really aggressive and you have to shoot it in a weak spot that I think is on its eyes or mouth or something so it gets really intense at the end in both cases and you have to act quick you have to be accurate you have to be good and uh that's how you beat the game (laughs) that's how you beat both of them so why don't we talk about controls a bit rich the uh nintendo 64 of course has a famously unique controller but let's start at the beginning, the Super Nintendo controller, obviously very beloved and well-known to you and me. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a flight game, and as such, the controls can be pretty unique. So what was your thought on them? You know, I actually like the controls pretty well. You know, you have a button that fires, you have a button that does your bomb, and the shoulder buttons, I think, are a perfect match for being able to roll on each side. I think that fits really well. You do get some settings where you can change some of the buttons, but your thrust, you can't really change that setting. I wish they would just let you map it to your controller how you would really like to, because I think for me that was a hard part of getting used to the game was using the thrust on the original Star Fox. And two, it was a little bit better set up, I thought. As far as the thumbsticks concerned, I'm kind of surprised that I enjoyed this as much as I did, but I thought it was just 
a much better fit. I'm usually the type of guy that really likes to play on the D-pad and always prefer the D-pad over the thumbstick. But I thought it really worked well in Star Fox 64. Another thing that I think is kind of unique to this game are the controls and how they're basically set standard to when you push down, the plane goes up, and when you push up, the plane goes down. I was a little thrown off by this at first when I started playing the game, but then I guess it was sort of like muscle memory or something because I tried to change it to press up and then the plane goes up and then press down and the plane goes down and it just did not work for me at all, which is kind of funny, but I guess I still had some muscle memory from playing it the few times I did play it as a kid and, uh, you know, the other way just did not work out for me. That's interesting. I'm guessing that you don't play too many 3D flight games because that's pretty common. Yeah, pretty standard uh, for most of those. Yeah, Y-axis. So. Yeah, games like Top Gun and stuff like that. I played a lot growing up, so that's probably why it felt more natural to me, I guess. So yeah, like the controls for me, I actually always use the default in both games. So I never mess around with changing anything. And like I said, I had a little bit of a challenge with Star Fox 64 playing it on the Wii. But like I said, using a GameCube controller works pretty well. And I should note, when I say I use a GameCube controller, I didn't plug an actual GameCube controller into the Wii because I'm not even sure if you can do that. You might be able to, but I don't know. I was playing the virtual console version of Star Fox 64 on the Wii with a GameCube controller that's designed to be plugged into the Wiimote and used as a classic controller. So the way it mapped the buttons ended up just working really well for me because it mapped the C-stick buttons to the X and Y, which on the GameCube controller are kind of in the same place. So it ended up working really naturally. And the problems that I was having on the Wii U, trying to use the Wii U gamepad, didn't translate over to when I started using a GameCube controller. Once again, I, you know, I should be playing a 64. I bought those um, Retro Fighters controllers for it. I hold on to my Nintendo 64 games, like thinking that I'm going to play them someday because I have so many and I have like every good game for the 64. I'd probably be upset if I got rid of them, but it's like, damn, we finally played a 64 game for the playthrough (laughs) and I couldn't be bothered to hook it up, so... Um, I had to make all these exceptions and try to play it on different systems, but that's just the way it is. You know, I have all these switch boxes and I actually have a system that's always hooked up and I don't know why I've not decided to put another system on one like my Wii because I definitely play my Wii more than I do my 64. So uh, yeah, yeah, that might be a change that happens pretty soon. (laughs) So one thing I wanted to comment on, here's something that we can get kind of granular on in the gameplay, and it involves the controls, is the cadence, if you will, of the laser fire. Mm -hmm. We should mention that there are laser upgrades in all three games. And one thing that's kind of weird, and it's going to be hard to explain, is that it's not lag, but it's like there's not like a one-to-one you press the button and a laser shoots out. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. 
If you're spamming the button, you get a weird rhythm to the laser coming out, depending on what level of power up you're at. And if you use um, turbo controller, which I messed around with on the 64 because this controller I was using had turbo function on it, it actually at times would not even work because it would turbo too fast for the laser to fire, I guess. <laughs> so it was actually kind of weird, like just messing around with that. That's something I've always noticed like over the years, just the weirdness of the relationship between the button presses and the actual lasers firing. And I was wondering if you... You know, you might not have anything to say about it, but if you noticed or if you had any comment on it, it's just something that I've always kind of liked about the game, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, even in a lot of the early arcade machines, you saw something similar to that. I think it was Galaxian. You would fire, and if you would try to fire again, that bullet would disappear, so you had to let that bullet ride its full way out. Space Invaders, you know, you shoot one time and... That one just goes, and until it ends, you don't get to fire again. Um, but, you know, with this game, it was like a, maybe a two-shot. It was like one, two, you could fire like two or three at the same time. And then there was like a lag in between before you could fire two or three more. And so you kind of had to get used to that system. Yeah, I, it's just a, it's a cool little quirk of the game, and I've always enjoyed it. So I'm glad you noticed. Yeah, it's neat when shooters have that different type of element of gameplay because it gives it something special. It's not always just filling the screen and loading it with fire. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about graphics and sound. We talked about the development of the Super FX chip, which was necessary to have these 3D polygonal graphics play on the Super Nintendo at a good enough frame rate to look halfway decent. The graphics in the original Star Fox game are pretty rudimentary by today's standards. They're big old triangles, basically, yeah. uh, kind of pieced together that look like big origami things flying through space, right? Yeah. And again, that kind of translates into Star Fox 2. I found Star Fox 2 a little bit more colorful and more interesting to look at. With the first Star Fox, you're more just flying through empty space, at least in my playthroughs. And the other element of the graphics being, again, those character portraits that I was talking about that are cartoony in the first two games and more three-dimensional in 64. Let's stay on one and two, though, for the graphics, because there's a big departure, obviously, between one and two and then jumping to the 64. Like I said, Rich, at the time, to me, these graphics were very impressive because... My exposure to 3D polygonal stuff like this was very limited, and I always thought this was kind of like next level, you know, like really? next gen kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. So looking back on it now, that may seem like a hard pill to swallow, but that's kind of the way it was back then. This stuff was really impressive. So I'm on the complete opposite end of that statement because I played it back in the day as well and I always felt like the Super Nintendo had such lush quality pixelated graphics that I felt like these polygonal graphics were just a huge step back. Okay. I've always very much disliked polygonal graphics just because they're so sharp at times when they shouldn't be so sharp. 
there's just something to those graphics that really detracts for me. And the Star Fox game is one that sort of mishmashes this stuff. You know, there's polygonal, but at the same time, like with the character portraits, with the map screen, all of that is 16-bit. Those graphics look lush, and then compared to these polygonal graphics that you get in the actual gameplay, it's such a stark contrast to me that it just never worked. That's just kind of my personal opinion. I was like, well, what the hell is this? You know, it just, it, it always looked odd to me. Again, that's just one man's perspective. So other people probably feel a lot differently and maybe had a different experience than I did growing up. No, I mean, that's totally fair. And I, I feel you. And you're not alone. I know this. So <laughs> <laughs> I just think... Growing up, you know, race driving and hard driving were also very impressive to me. So I guess I was just more leaning into polygonal graphics being impressive and like, wow, it's 3D. Even if it, there's no textures on it, it's still 3D and that's really cool. So I guess that was my kind of taste at the time. Well, yeah, I mean, that's our different personalities, right? You're the one who's very into VR and you know, we're excited to do that. And I'm the one that's hesitant, you know, I'm just like, eh, you know, yeah. let me take a step back. So, yeah, I mean, I think that just kind of says more about our personalities than anything. As I was mentioning, from the Super Nintendo games to the N64 game, there's obviously a big leap in graphical fidelity, right, Rich? Now you have oh, yeah. the ships look great. They have way more texture, way more polygons, obviously. And yeah. you have more things in space. You have the asteroids. You have the debris fields. You have other big ships and all kinds of other stuff and then like even just flying through that first level compare the corneria level of star fox one to the same first level in star fox 64 it's like a night and day difference you got buildings and bridges and trees and mountains and all kinds of stuff and it's just a major jump in graphical quality to me you are going from something that looks like this prototypical kind of primordial early 3D yeah. polygonal stuff to something that looks like something that was done on purpose and looks the way that the developers wanted it to look, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So yeah, in general, I really like the look. And to your point about the kind of mishmash of graphical styles in the first game, I think Star Fox 64 is way more cohesive visually. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what about the music, Rich? I actually really like the music in all three games, but it's not like one of those things where I'm like humming the tunes in my head. It's not <laughs> like the music from, say, like Super Mario World or something where it just kind of always sticks with me. But when yeah. I'm playing the games... I definitely remember the music. It's always getting me pumped. It's very pulsing and 
energetic and i think the the music in the super nintendo game the first game is actually really well done for what they were working with so what did you think about the music yeah i don't want to sound very negative on this but the music's very forgettable to me and let me explain that the reason it's so forgettable is because I'm really tuning it out because I'm so frantic in playing this game. Like (laughs) I'm sitting in my gaming chair and my entire body is moving. It's like my body feels like if I move to the left or right, somehow this damn plane or this reticle is going to (laughs) move at the same time. It's hilarious. I noticed myself doing this. I'm like, what in the hell am I doing? So I was way too caught up in the game to really pay attention to the music. And that's why I say forgettable. I I don't mean it in the typical sense of, you know, it sucked. I just don't remember it and just don't really have any opinion on it. (laughs) You know, probably should have listened to some of the music, you know, the uh, soundtrack on YouTube or something like that. But uh, yeah, I don't have any memory of what the music is like in these games. That's, that's totally fine. I, and that's a good explanation of why. And I can just picture you like, you know, it's funny. I've never been. Dude, it's intense. My shoulders got sore. That's so funny. It's weird. Like, I think that's one of, one of those things that some people do it and some people don't like the, the whole moving the controller around thing. I've never been somebody who does that. I always have the controller just still in my lap, but I, of course I've seen people that just wave the controller around thinking that's going to do anything. So that's that's kind of funny to hear that you were doing that on these games. And I think it's only games like that, like flight games. In normal games like beat-em-ups or action platformers or anything like that, I don't do that. I'm, I'm very still, you know, it's just my fingers that are moving. But there's something about, I guess, the motion that's in those games that's, you know, propelling you that just makes my body do that for some reason. Unless I check myself before I riggedy wreck myself. (laughs) 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 Good. All right. Well, Rich, I think we're getting a little punchy. It's getting a little late. So might as well get into the wrap ups here and final thoughts. If you don't have anything else you want to talk about with these three games. I did pull a few comments from our forum They're not exactly what I would call final thoughts, but they were key thoughts on a few of the different games. So we'll start with Disposed Hero. He said, so I started up Star Fox 64, which is an old favorite from my childhood, and it holds up very well. I felt like I was having a lot of trouble with hit detection and or depth perception with the original, but Star Fox 64 seems to have solved those issues, as well as added some new features and mechanics that are much appreciated. I like the original well enough and can appreciate it as a product of its time, but Star Fox 64 really improved on the formula so much that it makes it kind of hard to go back to the original. I plan on doing another run and trying to hit most of the levels I didn't play the first time. So that's Steven Disposed Hero. I like those thoughts. I'm pretty much aligned with his sentiment there. And he reminded me something I forgot to mention. Just a real quick gameplay addition that they put in Star Fox 64 that we didn't touch on is the uh, lock-on ability. So with your laser button, if you hold down the laser button, you can lock on to enemies and, you know, the enemies sometimes come at you in clusters so you can shoot the one in the middle and all of them explode. So 
if you pick your spots right, you can do cool stuff like that. So that's important to mention. The next quote here is from Razor Knuckles. And I really got to shout out Razor Knuckles. He's definitely like the VIP of this playthrough because he did some really lengthy commentary on the games with like level by level breakdowns of each game. And nice. I really appreciate his time and, and what he wrote on the forums. And he was helping people out with some of the gameplay challenges and stuff and giving tips and stuff. So he said about Star Fox 2, I had two playthroughs of this game, and on the initial playthrough, I had a pretty rough go. The controls just feel janky in the open world, and I just had a tough time landing hits. I got a bit used to its clunkiness, but never got it down pat. I do like how you can choose your characters with them having their own special abilities. This makes for a more unique playthrough compared to the first Star Fox. I like how you can switch characters before heading into a new battle. I really didn't care for the hub map where you must protect Corneria. It's an interesting change from the first Star Fox, but I just like the standard paths from the first. I'm really happy this game was released after all these years, even if I don't love it. Kinda sucks from the developer's view to finish a game and get it scrapped at the last minute. So yeah, again, Razor Knuckles with some thoughts there on Star Fox 2. And again, just go check out all the stuff he wrote on the forum there. Uh, Rich, I'm going to kick it over to you for some final thoughts. And if you don't mind, you might have been about to discuss this anyway, but I would like to know about the challenges that you had with the games and what were some of the hurdles and like what made you hit a wall where you decided you didn't want to endeavor to complete these games? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, a big part of it was my body was so sore from moving around so much. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, I, I think one of the biggest challenges for me was the flying of the craft and getting the reticle just right. I felt like in Star Fox 64, you had a better time like moving the reticle because you could kind of move that and it wasn't so stationary. As far as why I didn't pursue like beating these games or trying to, I think these games are kind of those get good games and I don't have the experience with it like a lot of people do who play this playthrough. And so they feel like really clunky to me and I had a really tough time aiming with the reticle and stuff. And going from first person to third person just always felt like so awkward to me. And like you said, now you can push the select button, you could switch views. And I didn't know that at the time. I thought you were just kind of stuck on whichever view the game forced you to play in. So it's good to know that now. One of the things that I really love about this series that I mentioned before is just the anamorphic characters in these games. It's like playing Animal Farm in space. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's a good comparison. I love it. And one of the things I love about Star Fox 2 is not only the extra characters you get. I feel like one was like a like a wolf or a lynx, and the other one was a female character. It was actually a lamb. I thought that was cool, but not only that, like you had enemies that would come at you as well. I'm sure there's more, but the two I got to, you had to fight a pig yeah. and then you had to fight like a gecko type lizard. I, I <laughs> yeah, just thought Leon. that was really cool. <laughs> yeah. 
the games have sort of a mixed bag when it comes to graphics for me. As I mentioned before, I really don't like how they mix really beautiful like 16-bit graphics of the Super Nintendo with these polygonal graphics. I feel like you got to go one way or the other and it just I don't know, it's very distracting for me and as someone who's obviously not a fan of the Nintendo 64, a lot of it has to do with how rough the graphics look. This is clearly what this reminds me of. In Star Fox 64, I'm kind of on the fence as far as the controls are concerned with the four C buttons and those getting you to do different tricks. While I like that part of the game, those buttons are kind of so small. I got really confused about what to push, and I just felt like I was sort of in maneuver overload with pushing all these buttons. Of course, that says more to the old guy gamer in me. <laughs> you know, like, what's with all these buttons? Can't we just have one button kind of thing? <laughs> I did think it was a nice addition, but to me, it was a little hard to grasp those concepts. Though I do appreciate that there are tutorials even within some of the levels. If I had to pick one of these three games as my favorite, I know this is not going to be a popular opinion, but I thought Star Fox 2 was the best out of the three games. I know some people really appreciate how linear Star Fox and Star Fox 64 are, and they don't want to break away from convention. But I really enjoyed the space map. I really enjoyed doing things like protecting the planet. I thought it gave this series a lot more variety. I know a lot of people crap on this game, but I feel like it's like the same people that crap on Star Wars movies. It's like, okay, there's a new movie out. And I'm not going to like it as much as I like the original movie, so I'm just going to have to totally crap on it without giving its fair chance. There kind of is that segment of people who are like that. I'm not saying that specifically that's the reason somebody hates on this game, but I just can't stand all the dislike for this game. It feels like a Star Fox game to me. I just feel like people should be appreciative and just enjoy it for what it is, which I think is the best of the three. Nice. Well, that's very interesting because it makes me really glad and it makes me feel like I definitely made the right decision to kind of twist your arm and to include Star Fox 2 to the point where I had to actually provide you with a copy to just force your hand into playing it. So I'm really, really glad that you enjoyed it as I hoped you would. So that's really cool to hear. So as far as myself, as I mentioned, I do have a lot of nostalgia for the first game and for 64. I still really love these games, and it's kind of weird that I had a little bit of trouble beating Star Fox 64 this time around, but I managed to get through it, and I got through the first game, and I find this second game like pretty easy to beat in general just because of the way it's structured. Which is cool because I don't play a lot of games like this that are shootery and I'm not sure I'd be able to beat these games if they were much harder than they are. And I don't think they're very hard. It's just that I'm not good at this kind of stuff. Except for the fact that I have been playing them for so many years, Star Fox 64 especially, that I can still fly in and just decimate the first level and I can beat the first boss in like two seconds because I know exactly what to do. And that's kind of a cool feeling for me because I don't have that with a lot of games. 
there's not a lot of games that I'm just an expert at or that I'm really good at. And I wouldn't even say I'm in that state with 64. It's just there are certain points of the game where I know exactly what to do and I'm very confident in my abilities. Like you, Rich, I really like the animal characters. I think it's a cool way to portray this story rather than just having humans in it. It would just make it a Star Wars ripoff. So to have that element of the different personalities playing into the animal types really makes the game interesting and colorful and Again, I think it kind of helps you to bond with the friendly characters and it makes the enemy characters more fun and menacing. And I just really like that aspect of it as well. With Star Fox 2 in particular, I agree with you that it's getting a bad rap from certain camps for the wrong reasons, as I discussed earlier and as you just kind of elaborated on. I think Star Fox 2 is a rad freaking game. I think it's really, really good. I think it fits well in line with Star Fox 1 and 64. I think it fits nicely in between the two of them. And I think people should give it a chance now that it's on the Switch. And like I said, if you have anything that plays Super Nintendo ROMs, it's pretty easy to get your hands on it to emulate it. And it's worth the, you know, 45 minutes it's going to take you to beat the game to just experience it and have a little fun. So my recommendation is pretty strong on all three of these games with the caveat of like what Steven was saying in his comments that Star Fox 64 in almost every conceivable way fulfills the promises of the original Star Fox game. So I would recommend if you've never played any of these games, start with the original Star Fox, because if you play 64 first, there really isn't much to go back to with the first game. And the second game, again, is its own thing. Definitely just a cool novelty to check out, a cool piece of history. And again, it's one of those things that's on my list of like, I can't believe they released this officially after all these years. It's in that same list of like Last Guardian, Near Automata, the Yakuza series getting really famous and popular. It's like, I can't believe this actually exists and is officially acknowledged and released by Nintendo after all these years. And I'm so grateful for it. And it's so cool. So, yeah, this is a very special series to me and pretty easy to get your hands on nowadays, all the versions of it. 64, I'm trying to think of what the easiest way to play 64, probably the 3DS version. For a while, it was hard to find, but it's more common than it used to be to be able to get a a copy of it for the 3DS. Otherwise, it's on the virtual console of the Wii. If you don't have it already, you're not going to be able to get it. But the Wii U, I think, is still online as of the time of this recording. So you can still get your hands on Star Fox 64. And hopefully one day they start doing 64 games on the Switch. Uh, Everybody kind of is predicting that that's what's going to happen next. That would be really cool. But yeah, I love these games. Highly recommend all of them. Start with the first one if you want to play all three and just work your way through the series. Star Fox 64 is the best game on the Nintendo 64. And it is one of the greatest games of all time. 
That's all I have to say, Rich. Why don't we roll into our announcements for our games for February and March? You got February, so what are we playing? Yes, uh, in February, you should already be playing South Park, The Stick of Truth. Now, there's been a lot of buzz on the forums about how (laughs) good this game is. I have not started yet. I plan on starting tomorrow since the wife is still away. Maybe put on some uh, TV for the kids upstairs so they won't want to watch me play this game. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... Sean and I were talking, and admittedly, the two of us are really not what we would call South Park fans. I think we both have an appreciation for the show culturally, but that's kind of it. And so it's going to be interesting to see how we fall on this game and what our enjoyment of it is going to be. I really wanted to play another RPG, and I've been bugging Sean for years to actually play this game, so I'm really excited to dive into it. It will definitely quench my thirst for an RPG and hopefully provide some nice comic relief and get rid of some of the stress that I've had going on for the last few months. That is awesome. That's a very good point that this game will scratch the itch both of the RPG craving that you've been having as well as some some real levity and comic relief. I'm currently playing it, and I think I'm more than halfway through it. It is hilariously funny, at least to me. Rich, I gave up a while ago, and you already mentioned it, so I think we're safe here, but I gave up on telling you what games to play in front of your kids, (laughs) but I'm just going to implore you to not play this game around your children. (laughs) Just trust me on this one. So a game you can play around your children is Fable 2, and that's what we're playing in March, which is a game for the Xbox 360, which is backwards compatible on the Xbox One, and as of the time of this recording, it is on Game Pass. So Fable 2 is kind of a light RPG. It's baby's first Western RPG. It was one of the first Western RPGs I ever played, so I have a fondness for it. Rich, we talked about playing the Fable series, and I kind of made the executive decision that we should just jump to Fable 2 because what happens sometimes is the game I really want to play for example, is Fable 2, but we'll say, well, we got to play the first one first, and then we never get around to the second one. The stories are related, but they're not like a direct sequel. You definitely don't have to play the first one to play the second one. So I am glad that you were willing to just jump right into the second game because I like it a lot more. And I really hope some of our usual cast of players will join us and listeners And one thing I will say, if you're listening to this before March and you have time to start up a game of Fable 2, it actually has a real estate system where you can buy properties and collect rent. And the rent accumulates even when you are not playing the game. So what I did is I started a game in January and I bought every property in the first two towns and I've just been racking up gold by not playing the game. I think you have to sign in once a week and just load up your game, accumulate your gold, and then save the game. 
but I have about 3 million gold, which is a huge bankroll for this game. So that's a little tip to anybody who's interested in playing the game. It will give you an advantage over the economy of the game. Nice. And before we sign off, I just want to mention that RF Generation is having their annual fun drive in February. So if you can, log on to the site, hit that donate button, and send us a donation to keep the site going. Of course, this is the site where Sean and I list all of our podcasts. This is where we met. This is where we house our video game collections. So the site is very important to us and all the friends and memories that we've made there. And we want to keep that going in the future. So again, if you have a chance, please donate. We've got some nice prizes that we're going to be raffling off for those who donate $10 or more. So please, if you're able, hit that donate button. Thanks. episode thank you as always for listening and a special thanks to our participants in february we're playing the outrageous licensed rpg by obsidian south park the stick of truth which is available for most seventh and eighth generation platforms and is intended for mature audiences no really there's some sick and twisted in this game Be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com to join the playthrough, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast.
fresh meat. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blamage. Your mom uh, had an accident. I'll uh, take you to her. Uh-oh. Look, Wild Bill. Who was that? Some stranger. He said Donnie's mom was hurt. I didn't know if I should go with him. Well, just don't do what a stranger says. Check it out with an adult you know. Remember, a stranger can mean danger. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe!